Welcome to the Marshall Pro Podcast in our week in IndyCar series. This coming, the very first episode of the 2019 season following the launch at St. Petersburg last weekend, won by Joseph Newgarden and Team Penske. Got a marathon episode for you. There's a little bit of a reason for it being a marathon, and that is, this is our 500th episode. Well, not in the week in IndyCar, but our Marshall Pro Podcast, five hundred episodes since we debuted in the month of May in 2016. So we have Mike Hull, Chief Strategist for reigning IndyCar champion Scott Dixon forever, and also the Managing Director of Chip Ganassi Racing as our first guest. We spent about two hours answering a whole bunch of truly awesome listener questions. Then we move on to Marcus Erickson. From Aeroschmidt Peterson Motorsports, spent about a half an hour with Marcus, who's just getting ready to leave for the airport and head to Australia, where he will be the reserve driver for his former F1 team, that being what was Sauber when he drove for it now, the Alfa Romeo team. And then we close with young Parker Thompson, 21 years old, from Western Canada, absolutely dominated the weekend in the Indy Pro 2000 series with Abel Motorsports trying to get his road to Indy career back on track. This is a kid, genuinely, who should be in Indy Lights right now. Uh, He lost out to Renus VK, who won the Pro Mazda Championship last year. It was just renamed the Indy Pro 2000 Championship. Renus, amazing close to the season in particular, deserved that championship without a doubt, but would also say that if you saw Renus and Parker go after it, Yeah, these guys were definitely, depending on the weekend, first or second, second and first, back and forth. And so knowing that Renus earned that championship, earned that advancement prize from Mazda to get to Indy Lights, although Parker did not win that same advancement prize, there's no question he has the talent and deserves to be there alongside the super talented Dutchman, uh, have this super talented Canadian with him there too. So spent about a half hour with Parker. Uh, we're going to try and do more of this too. Uh, normally the format we've had on the Week in IndyCar has been one guest and there we go. Well, trying to do a little bit more. Uh, honestly, it's inspired by the somewhat new, it's now about two months old, a uh, new show that I've started called Inside the Sports Car Paddock, which is not so much Q&A, but just more of getting two, three, sometimes four people from the world of domestic and international sports car racing on the phone, doing short-form interviews, just putting those together for you. I decided, well, I don't have the bandwidth, honestly, to add an Inside the IndyCar Paddock show, because that would be my fourth weekly show, and yeah, I'm already at my kind of bandwidth with what I'm doing, but... How can I roll in to have more guests for you, though, from the general world of American Open Wheel? So I figure, well, I'm going to try and have, obviously, minimum one guest, maybe two. And if I can do three, I'm going to try and do that as well. And when possible, make that second or third guest a younger driver from the road to Indy so you can get to know more of these, hopefully, these next generation stars, the ones who will be getting there in a couple years. And maybe, who knows? Champions, Indy 500 winners, you name it. Parker, definitely someone who uh, I would say has demonstrated the talent, uh, the potential to be one of those next-generation IndyCar drivers. So, anyways, glad that we had some time with him after he swept the weekend. uh, Fastest lap, new lap record, two poles, two victories. It was all Parker Thompson there. 
And uh, so let's see. What else can we tell you? Got our new Marshall Pruitt podcast site is up and running. And it's been a lot of fun finally getting it ready. It's been a labor of love for a couple of months now. And it is just a very simple entry into your browser. Don't need to throw in a www or anything like that. M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L-P-R-U-E-T-T-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. MarshallPruittPodcast.com. Then you'll be in luck. So uh, if you get a chance, check it out. Uh, while there, browse around. Got a lot of uh, a lot of goodies there. Broken things down into the various primary categories of our weekly shows and some other good stuff too. And have a big old red subscribe button that'll hopefully make it easy for you to either start downloading every episode or if you want to just stream without downloading. Those are options you can choose from there. So head over to marshallpruittpodcast.com and yeah, hope you like it. Give me some feedback. If you hate it, I don't know, tell me. Whatever it is, let me know. But that's going to be the resource. Every episode is going to go up there you know, moments after it goes live. And definitely it is our archive for everything. So now there's, with this new episode, there'll be 500 episodes on marshallpruittpodcast.com for you to go through. There's a lot of cool stuff, too. Uh, I've even forgotten about some of it, but I've spoken with a lot of folks over the last almost three years, and it's there for you to listen to. We'll mention that our pals at torontomotorsports.com have been a great supporter uh, for more than a year now. We had Derek Koska, who's the owner and, uh, and founder of Toronto Motorsports. He was in St. Petersburg, helped us last weekend with our live weekend IndyCar show on the Cooper Tires stage, was handing out stickers, brought some great t-shirts. Just He does great work. They do great work. We have some new stuff, some new MP podcast swag, weekend IndyCar t-shirts, weekend sports cars, blah, blah, blah. I would just say in terms of patronage and supporting those who support me and uh, make these things available, uh, torontomotorsports.com, pretty cool folks who are really a huge, huge part and supporter of the IndyCar community. Again, thanks to everyone who turned up for the Friday evening live show there on the Cooper stage being presented by Cooper Tires, obviously, and also our dear friends at the Justice Brothers. Another cool thing, too, and it's kind of what I was hoping for all along, and that was we've been picked up by Auto Week. Uh, Auto Week, which is just an American institution, a magazine that my father bought regularly, I bought regularly, uh, and have always admired. Uh, while I might not work for Auto Week, uh, just they're, again, part of that brick and mortar of what we do here in North America with the car and drivers, road and tracks, in the kind of general automotive sphere. Um, they have picked up and started syndicating the Marshall Pruitt podcast as of Monday. Uh, it was really an honor when they inquired about it, and that has been a goal all along for media outlets to reach out and say, hey, can we use it? And yes, the answer is yes. Uh, it is free. It's free for everybody, whether it's my own clients or fans or whatever media outlets uh, with the support of Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers and Toronto Motorsports and Bell Helmets and all kinds of good folks who've helped to get us to where we are. It's all free. And so uh, hearing that Auto Week wanted to use it and will be using it and has, honestly, it's just great. And that's the kind of stuff I hope for because that grows our reach and in theory brings more folks to our party, more great questions for the Week in IndyCar or Week in Sports Cars, you name it. So 
just try to build the brand a little bit and if you know of someone with a media outlet that might enjoy it well don't hesitate to let them know it is truly free for syndication just drop me a note and the last item here yeah and i mentioned it once or twice in our conversation with mike hall but 500 episodes uh, it's a crazy number i guess if i had space things correctly maybe the 500th episode would have landed on the day of the indy 500 in may i'm not that smart but regardless yeah it is genuinely i'm i'm blown away that we've done 500 episodes in the almost three years that we've been doing this and thank you truly thank you uh we wouldn't have gotten to 50 if folks weren't listening or saying yeah keep going pruitt this might not be fully polished yet and you might be stumbling your way through it but keep stumbling uh there's something there and i'm still doing it uh i'd be lying i mean look man uh i i try not to overstate this too often but you know come from fairly humble backgrounds nothing outrageous son of a mechanic grew up at my dad's shop loved it best thing in the world um you know spent my life working in racing being a mechanic engineer little team manager stuff ran my own team for a little bit blah 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 uh switched over to the media side and you know a lot of on the job education there and have kind of figured that out for the most part but that was always done as being a conduit not being a frontline guy standing in front of the tv microphone in hand and i'm just going to talk and boy it's going to be perfect these are things I've had to learn, and I'm still learning them. Some It's starting to feel vaguely natural. I think it's just because of the repetition, and that's maybe a positive of getting to 500 episodes, is I'm doing it frequently enough to where I'm not making a complete ass out of myself in every episode. So thanks again. Seriously, thank you for listening, whether you've been with me since episode one with Mario Andretti to now episode 500 with Mike Hull, Marcus Erickson, and Parker Thompson. So with all that said, let's get going. Got about two hours with Mike, half hour with Marcus, and a half hour or so with Parker. So whether you get this all in one listen or you spread this out until next week's show, thanks for joining in for the Supersize 500th celebration episode the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, presented to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. Mike Hull, we have reached the number 500, 500 episodes of this Marshall Pruitt Podcast, and because I have the ability to do very easy searches on the back end of my new marshallpruittpodcast.com site, you've been on 62, well this is now 63 of those 500 episodes, which tells me two things. A, you're awesome, or, or it may, might tell me three things. A, you're awesome. B, you need to value your time more and say no. And, uh, and three, clearly folks love hearing from you when we do our Week in IndyCar shows and a variety of other things, too. So thanks for, uh, thanks for not only coming on, but I wanted to have you on for episode 500, knowing that you have been a big part of helping me build this little thing we do here. Well, it's really great to be with you, and uh, I never really thought about the numbers. Uh, uh, I just think about, uh, <laughs> well, let's face it, number 500 is pretty important. I really, that, that number means a lot to me, so I'm happy that I'm part of the 500th episode. 
Amen. Well, as usual, and it might sound like platitudes each week, but I, I do mean it. We have great questions. We have awesome questions. We got the best questions. We got the best words. We got the best everything. Um, we got great questions for episode 500. And we have plenty that were sent in for you or me or the two of us. And have also had some time and also greatly appreciative to IndyCar race director Kyle Novak, who answered two questions that I sent over uh, from our listeners via email, and he sent back responses. And same with Stephen Starks, who I, I really, really like. And Stephen, uh, who is IndyCar's VP of Promoter and Media Partner Relations, so he's fired back a couple of uh, answers for folks who sent in questions that were beyond my knowledge. So we'll uh, get to those in a little bit. I figure... You know, not only was it perfect having you on for the 500th episode, also happens that that certain Scott Dixon guy you have been working with for 200 years now, um, he did not so bad at St. Pete, finishing second. And then there was this kid, Felix Rosenquist, in fourth for you all, who did some pretty amazing things. Before we get into recapping the weekend using our listeners' questions... What was the mood in Chip Ganassi Racing, I guess, after the race, maybe even Monday, knowing that both the young buck and the old veteran, boy, they delivered? Uh, they certainly did. Um, uh, it, it, it doesn't feel like 500 episodes with Scott at this point, but yeah. uh, uh, it, it's great to race with Scott and, and race with Chip Ganassi, certainly. Uh I th- I, we found it interesting, uh, wow, during the race, but after the race, that we as, we were actually as good as we were on cold black tires, uh, which we haven't always been. We've been working pretty hard on that. That's one of the things we set out to do over the winter, uh, was to try to understand that uh, maybe more, just the fundamentals of that a, a little more deeply. Uh, because the pass that Scott made on Will and the pass that Felix made on Will uh, were early in the runs when you were still trying to build tire temperature. Yep. And uh, we thought we were better as the race went on. We weren't sure, but we thought we were better than most everyone else, including Penske, on black tires for the first 15 or 20 laps of a run. Hmm. Uh, it equalized itself toward the end of the run. Um, and uh, uh, But at the beginning of the run, where we're not always the best, we were pretty good, and that was evidenced by what Felix did with his pass uh, <laughs> uh, on on Will. Uh, I think that kind of spun Will's head around a little bit, and uh, uh, and then the the pass that Scott made on Will, uh, the, like the the double overtake pass. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I think that 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 spoke highly of what we've worked on. Uh, I know I read a comment from someone at Penske Racing. I can't remember which person it was from the press conference that said that they worked on the street course program quite a bit over the winter. Um, I don't know how you do that when you only run at Sebring one time. Hmm. Uh, but uh, they obviously were really, really good there. And uh, uh, they had a good winter, and uh, so, did, so did a lot of other people. Um, but, you know, there's 17 to go. So we'll just keep working on it. Part of me thinks that there's a, some sort of big lever that you pull at the Penske shop. 
in, in North Carolina, and beneath it is are, are just full. You go down layer after layer, and there's full size replicas of every street court. Uh, so again, it's just sure a it's a theory. I'm working on it, and should also thank you again for taking time here while you've been fighting a cold for a little bit. So yeah, it's okay. You're uh, working better. You're soldiering on. Well, one of the things too that I, I believe folks appreciate about your um, constant, or, you know, your frequent appearances here, Mike, is you're not just here to, to speak about Chip Ganassi racing. You're also very, you know, open and kind to uh, discuss other drivers and teams because while you might compete for one team in particular, you've been around the sport for your life. You're able to, you know, look at what's going on outside of uh, the walls of your team and, and appraise what uh, what's going on as well. So, Let's start off with a question from Zach Smithengel, who says, Will Power has otherworldly ability to bank the right time on the right lap, the right moment in qualifying, particularly on street and road courses? And frankly, he's blisteringly fast on one lap pace. He says, we can only speculate, obviously, but is that a skill that you think would carry over to F1 or NASCAR road courses or any other series that runs uh, like things that we do in IndyCar? Or do you think that his talents or ability to extract this one lap speed, Mike, is more of a might be more of a specific IndyCar talent? I, I think today he's under control in, in doing it the right way. Number one, um, and he has that innate ability that uh, it's not taught. Um, it's not some, something that probably that, that we know. It's not some, something that somebody helps you with. It, it comes from just having uh, the sheer ability to be able to get it done under pressure. Hmm. And uh, he is certainly presently the best at it, uh, obviously by the number of poles that he has. What was it, 55 or 56 or ridiculous. something? Yeah, ridiculous, yeah. In, in IndyCar racing, an enormous amount. Um, so it's not by accident that he does it. Um, and, I, and I think the ability that he has is now uh, – defined with maturity without losing raw speed um, and uh, envious of that envious of uh, of him and uh, and it's fun to watch uh, because I don't think he even knows what's going to happen <laughs> uh, so I think he even surprises himself and I think that's the best part of it no I think you're onto something there because he knows he can tap into that thing but there's no there's no arrogance with it like oh yeah I, you know I got these fools no, covered. No, no, no. There, no. There's yeah, it's kind of fun seeing him with reaction like holy crap I just did it. <laughs> Meanwhile, the rest of us are like yeah okay for the fifty fifth time. Or, but, all right, you know we'll go with yeah. you. That's cute power. Uh, this question comes in from Matt Odland. He says Mike and Marshall, the Felix Rose quiz signing at Ganassi feels like the old days when Chip signs a Nardi and Montoya. <laughs> says, are there other drivers out there in development series, international series, uh, maybe that are under the radar that we should be keeping our eyes on here in North America? So curious on the international front, but also the road to Indy front, too. Well, I think there are. Um, uh, but I think, you know, what, what I've always thought is that uh, it's always the matchup of the owner with the talent at the time that the seat is available. Hmm. Um, and uh, uh, and then the driver's ability to be able to 
have command of the, of the formula that, that he or she have been asked to drive. Um, that's the hardest part. It's the matchup. Let's face it, uh, Chip Ganassi Racing has matched a lot of people up, and uh, a good portion of them have been very successful. But our record isn't 100%. Um, and the people that might not be at the level that uh, Zach's question referenced um, are still really good, top-quality race drivers. It's just that when they matched into the formula that they were asked to drive, that's when it counts. Um, and uh, there's a lot of young drivers that are coming along through the system, like Felix, that given the right opportunity are then under pressure have to get it done. If you look at where Felix came from and what he's had to do to earn money to be a race driver, some you should just Google that and read through that rather than have Marshall or myself tell you who he is. Uh, because it's extraordinary what he's done to get to where he is today. Um, and w- the root of that is that the generation that he represents, most all of the talented drivers from that generation now are in Formula E. And the reason is, is because they didn't have the 30, 40, 50 million dollars to buy their way onto the back of the grid in Formula One. Yeah. And it used to be that drivers like Felix would drive for, from, from a, a team that uh, typically would be from, let's say, 12th to 22nd on the grid in Formula One. And a frontline team would say, oh my God, we need that guy. Maybe like, uh, say, James Hunt. Remember, he raced with Hesketh. Absolutely. And then all of a sudden, Boom, he's in, in a McLaren car, and what does he do? And it used to be that drivers like Hunt would be in a second-tier car. I hate to say that about a Hesketh, but in a second-tier car for a while, and their talent would be recognized, and they'd be moved up. Today, drivers like that don't have that, with real opportunity, with real ability, don't have that opportunity. And uh, so Felix is kind of like that, almost a lost generation of talent, um, unless they were from the right country, uh, somebody really liked him. There was a there there was a big ga- gaping hole, and uh, probably the only people that really pushed that presently in Formula One are the Red Bull people up to a certain point. And outside of that, uh, I think it's lip service to most of the young guys that would like to drive in Formula One that don't have a budget. Um, and uh, Felix has a lot of ability and. Uh, just, I think people realize we did test him twice in an Indy car, but he was con- committed contractually to uh, uh, the Mahindra people in Formula One for a while, so we couldn't take advantage of what we thought was a good opportunity, and uh, it finally happened for us, and uh, you can see the result. You know, the other thing that comes to mind, and this is not uh, looking for any reason to speak negatively of Ed Jones. I mean, Ed until he had his uh, moment and, and crashed at uh, St. Pete. I mean, he was flying Fred Carpenter racing, and he obviously had an amazing 2017 debut with Dale Coyne racing. I just You mentioned the, the matching of young talent at the right time with the right team, and it wasn't lost on me last weekend just thinking how the exact same number 10 blue NTT Honda that we hoped was going to be up front with Dixie, shoulder to shoulder, a a real two-car effort, you know, strength of effort, 
didn't really turn out to happen for the majority of the year. And again, Ed's a heck of a driver, and I think with another year or two, he's going to be, you know, has the potential to be a very serious front-running type talent in IndyCar. Just coming in his second year of IndyCar with you guys, we just saw that, all right, not fully baked yet. Needs to go back into the oven a little bit. And that just, what to me, was you know further reinforced of how, as you mentioned, the, the youth, but plus the right time with that team, you can't skip any of those points because here we have Felix, a rookie, <laughs> driving the same exact car Ed stepped out of, Help qualifies Dixie for the first race, leads 31 laps, throws down the pass of the race on freaking willpower, finishes fourth, but still, you just go, aha, interesting to see how this guy, a few years older, more mileage on him, despite being a rookie, uh, was indeed perfect timing to get the most out of the opportunity. Yeah, the... um I mean, if you look at what he did last year, and that's what I said, just Google his history. Uh, look what he did just last year in racing. I think he raced 30 or 31 times last year uh, in in different series. So, um, you know, he, he, did a, he did a small foray in, in Indy Lights, and what did he do? He won four races or five races or whatever it was, and 12, 12 races. Yeah. Um, uh, but he was racing full-time in Europe at the time. Um, so... It's he won Macau twice on the trot. I don't know if 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 if, if in your lifetime you ever want to go to see a, a gladiator race, <laughs> fly to Hong Kong and take the airboat over to Macau. Um, it, it, it's an amazing and amazing event, and and for somebody to win that race twice uh, for the talent pool that does that in the off season, uh, it, it it that's a big deal. So. He's done a lot of things right in his career, and uh, under pressure, he's closed the deal. And uh, um, he has a lot of confidence, but it's backed up by the fact that he actually looks looks at how it's done. And uh, he does have a terrific teammate, but he's got a terrific team, a group of teammates, period. Uh, It's the same, that 10 car is the same group virtually that's been on that car for the last seven or eight, nine years. Going all the way back to Dario. Hmm. If you think about it like that, the same group of people are still on that car. Uh, And that car has been sitting there as it raced at St. Pete for the last eight years. Uh, So that's the car he stepped into. Let's go to Nick... Dovniak. And thanks, Nick. Nick normally sends in questions for my Week in Sports Car show, so it's great to have you over here, too. He's asking us about the difference between setups from a road course to a street course. You want to take that one, Mike, or shall I? <laughs> uh, why don't you start, Marshall? <laughs> well, I'd like to hear what you have to say. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, honestly, Nick, the, the biggest differences happen to be movement and control. On a street course compared to a natural terrain road course, we know that grip is going to be much lower. Obviously, these are city streets, not a curated bespoke track surface that's been laid down that's meant to have high grip. So you have worn track surfaces. You have all the things you hear about oil and dirt and you name it uh, that happens to be on the surface. So 
if we're thinking about setups for the difference between a street course and a road course, in general, you're going to be looking to maximize, if not you know, everything you can just about pile on for downforce. There could be some slight changes there, though. Some teams might, depending on the length of the straightaway, there could be a higher value placed on straight line speed uh, than maximum cornering performance uh, if passing and overtaking happens primarily at the end of that long straight. But uh, essentially, things are going to be a little bit softer. Chassis setup-wise, a little bit lighter springs possibly. Just something that allows the car to roll and move more to make mechanical grip since the track surface itself is not going to be a super, super good friend like kind of like Velcro, Uh, you know, half of the Velcro helping the car to stick. So just in a very general sense, uh, you're going to be a little bit softer trying to get uh, more compliance in movement into the car. And also you're going to try and use a whole bunch of downforce to help drive that chassis and those tires into the ground since the ground itself is really not a big partner in helping to make grip. So, um, yeah, and I think that that in itself is probably the biggest difference between between natural terrain road tracks, most of them, and, uh, and street track racing is the fact that you have to run the car you can run the car in a more controlled, I don't know if the word controlled is the right word, but certainly is part of it, a more controlled manner on a natural terrain road track. So you can run the car lower, uh, um, lower closer the ground. to the ground. Yep. Yeah, lower to the ground, front and rear. So that that allows uh, the downforce to be more consistent for an entire lap, whereas on a road track, uh, the downforce is, is tougher to get that right because you have to define compliance with uh, uh, with different dampers and uh, uh, different settings in order to be able to get all the grip you need. And, and you can get the grip in the tire, but then you lose it with the downforce the higher you go, particularly in the rear. Uh, so uh, when that happens, that uh, it has a tendency to... Uh, uh, you have a tendency to chase it a lot. Um, and that's probably what you do the most, particularly in the first and second session, is try to get that right. Yeah. Uh, so that you can cost, then zero in on uh, what you have to do the rest of the weekend. Traction also, Nick, to close. Traction uh, in straight-up uh, street course uh, configuration, that tends to be the thing that you are really going after so heavily compared to uh, a Road America uh, some of the more flowing circuits where, well, you you might get down to second gear once. For the most part, most corners you're f- rolling through, third gear, fourth gear, something in that range. A higher speed tends to be a little bit of the opposite on a street course. So you are down in the lower gears quite a bit, sharper, 90-degree corners possibly, uh, a lot of straight line braking, turning, and getting on to power instead of it just being more of a flowing uh, lap per se. So if you just think about that too, the need to slow the car down a lot, turn it hard, and then boom, jump right back on the power to accelerate again, you're going to need the rear of the car to do uh, a lot of work mechanically to make that grip more, more of a dragster mentality. Uh, I guess I would say that's how at least my brain always works with street course setups. Uh, yes, there are going to be some straights. There's going to be a couple high speed sections, but essentially 
you are trying to win drag races from tight corner to tight corner. And just mindset-wise, you can't do that if the rear springs are 8 million pounds because, well, granted, you'll do some great burnouts, Mike. You're just not going to go forward uh, because the thing will be so stiff and uh, so impossible to control. Well, let's move on to... We're going to hear someone whose name I know is going to mean a lot to you, or at least his, his chosen name for Twitter, The Dude. Um, yes. Uh, he said, notice during qualifying that some teams were refueling on the driver's left, even though they have to use the right side during the race. Why is that? Well, uh, we have a situation where, exactly to your point, the refueling Buckeye, the, uh, the large orifice Buckeye, is indeed fitted to the right side of the car to make it easy to plug in at St. Pete. Well, during practice and qualifying and otherwise, for teams wanting to add in a very specific amount uh, of fuel, uh, you'll actually connect to the other side where they can use a metered flow. And if the engineer calls for five gallons, for example, uh, that is exactly what they can put in and measure the amount going in. Uh, not, I don't want to say to the drop, but pretty darn close. That isn't something you can do with the refueling probe uh, during those sessions during you know prior to uh, warm up or the race. So it's just a case of trying to put in uh, smaller exact amounts during the uh, uh, those sessions you've mentioned uh, that are done in a way that IndyCar says is all right per the rules. Uh, let's see. Let's go to Curtis Boggs who says for Mister Hole. With Scott Dixon's epic mid-race move on power through St. Pete's turns one and two in mind, are you still able to fully appreciate Scott's badassery? Or do you find yourself taking it for granted on occasion after all these years? And I'll just throw in, uh, for those of you who haven't seen the overhead footage of that, I think Dixie posted, reposted that on, on Twitter. Oh, my good, You know, he's already... A leading candidate for pass of the year. I know we we appreciate what Felix did, but the overhead shot there. Oh, go check it out for sure. But what do you think, Mike? You know, have you seen enough of that? You're like, all right, whatever. The bar's too high. Uh, no, I don't think the bar's too high. I think uh, the unexpected continues to happen, um, and it's not just with Scott Dixon. Scott Dixon has his fair share of those moves, but. That's why we go to the racetrack. Uh, that's why we hung on the fence when we were kids uh, to see that kind of stuff. Um, it doesn't. It when it works, it's extraordinary. <laughs> when it doesn't work, it makes the highlight real on the other end. Uh, uh, but uh, like the skill set of people like Scott or Will or Felix or Newgarden, Rossi. Uh, Hunter Ray, any of those guys that run at the front consistently, uh, that not only do they have the skill set to do it, but they have the trust in each other. Because a pass like that takes two people. The one person initiates it, the other person trusts that that driver's going to get it done. And uh, and I'm sure that they, if they could take their hat off to him, they would at that point in time, but they can't. Uh, so it, it's continually fun to watch, and I appreciate that question very much. Yeah, that was a great one, Curtis. Thank you for sending that in. Let's go to, uh, let's see, why don't we go to, 
I just scrolled way the heck down, so let me scroll back up. Let's go to Kevin Perez-Frederico. Kevin, again, thank you for always sending in great questions. He says, uh, for Mike, what did you like and what did you see that Felix might also be able to improve after his debut? Uh, Curious there, right? I mean, we celebrate the kid. We've been telling everyone for years he's great, but... You know, he, he didn't win. Um, there, you know, he, he looked like he just lost a fight with you know a, a, a polar bear. He was so worn out. But uh, what comes to mind about this kid's performance positives and in uh, areas to improve? Well, I, f- I found the, the race really interesting because it, it kind of was a breakaway race for the first four positions. Uh, there was a there was a group about three or four seconds behind the first four spots for the entire race. But there were two races going on within the race at the front. And uh, Dixon and Newgarden were third and fourth. And Power and and uh, uh, Felix were first and second. The only way that that was going to be reversed was with a change in strategy by the third and fourth place car. So... Um, I don't know if people figured that out or not. The uh, in terms of Felix, uh, I really like what he does. I, I like how he handles himself out of the car. Hmm. I like the fact that he digs in and figures out uh, what it's going to take uh, based on his information and his teammates' information to be better at what he's doing. Um, that part of the job will get better and better. So if I were to answer the question, I would say that's what we're going to see next is the fact that he's going to, he's going to have confidence in that information more and more and more. And, uh, and I, and I think that's a subtle thing for the people from the outside to probably either pick up on or understand. Um, the pit stop stop sequence is something that he has never done before. Uh, think about this. This was the first time he'd ever done three pit stops in a row. Wow. Uh, so you can practice pit stops all day long, but you have to get the timing right. You have to hit the – when you come in the pits, you have to be able to get to the pit box successfully. You have to get in the pit box square. Uh, you have to understand when it's time to leave, uh, and you have to understand how to drive, first of all, on the outlap on cold tires – uh, because people time, let's say people time from the pit exit to the start finish line on that first lap to see how a driver does. Does he, does that driver make up time or lose time compared to his competitors? And the, the last two or three in laps on well used tires, do you, do you main, do you keep the speed up or are your tires falling off and you don't know how to adapt to that well? Hmm. So those are the things that drivers like Felix will, will study extremely hard. They'll study the video. They'll study the timeline information. They'll study what they actually do in the pit box. They'll study the release of the car. Uh, they will study all of that in relationship to the in and out lap in the pit lane. And, and I think those are the areas where Felix will improve. Uh, there was quite a, quite a document that was put out today by one of our engineers about the difference between ourselves, our two drivers, and some of the others in relationship to timeline data when it comes to pit stops. So... Those are the things that uh, non-IndyCar drivers who are becoming IndyCar drivers begin to uh, understand, and then they work really, really hard on that. Most people just think they work on the the lap. (laughs) 
wow. on the on, on the 14 corners at St. Petersburg, but they got to work on the pit lane too. So he'll work extremely hard on, it and he'll be successful with. You know, another thing which I appreciate about Felix, just so early in his career, and I I think fans will see and and, and come to know on their own. While young, you know, still comparatively young, 27 or so, I believe, and while having a lot of mileage in a, you know, nine or ten other series, this is not a kid with a huge ego. This is not a a been there, done that kind of guy. Yeah, I realize I'm new to IndyCar, but I've driven everything and been successful in it. Uh, There's none of that. it's, It's... not just a case, Mike, where there's none of that. It's the exact opposite. And his honesty about his flaws, it was fascinating to me to read something, I believe it was coming out of the spring training event at Coda, maybe heading into St. Pete, where he was talking about, oh yeah, no, Coda, I, I was, wasn't very happy with myself. I kept messing up the braking zones. I kept making the same mistake over again. And again, this isn't private conversation. This is public. This is putting in print for anyone to use and read. And uh, again, I just think this speaks to someone whose head is in the right place for where he's at in his career. If he's got a couple of championships, we might not be hearing that as much. But despite all the positives we and many others have said about him for years, yeah, he doesn't he doesn't onboard any of that and wear it like, aha, see, everyone says I'm great. It's the opposite. He's like, man, I got to do this thing better and that thing better, and I can't believe I screwed up that other thing. Those are the things you want to hear from someone at this stage of his career. I agree. And, uh... Um uh, it's like he's had an ego cleanse at the right moment in his life. Uh, <laughs> it's really refreshing. <laughs> Kevin also asks me from all the cars that I've wrenched on or engineered or even the couple that I've uh, raced, which one would I choose to take uh, for a Pikes Peak hill climb event? And he also says, and then I need to choose one current driver and engineer to run it. Uh, well, this one's easy for me, Kev, to choose because... The car had so much potential, and the idiot team manager, engineer, project leader, who also happens to be named Marshall Pruitt and looks a lot like me, uh, it was a it was a failure. It's one of the couple failures that still stings more. I mean, 13 years later, uh, built a semi-factory Subaru WRX STI that uh, competed very briefly in the uh, World Challenge Speed GT World Challenge Series, and. It had an enormous potential. I sh- should have done so much better putting the team and car together. Uh, had Cosworth heads on the thing, giant turbo, amazing intercool, intercooling system, and this and that, and electronics up the wazoo. Obviously, all-wheel drive, giant tire. It was, oh, Mike, it was beautifully constructed. Had 650-plus horsepower. Should have been a monster. Uh, yeah, could have done a better, far better job, so that was realized. So I would just say, Kev, that car, that car if I had a couple of months to get it right and test it, that's what I would send up the hill. And I realized that he drives a Chevy in IndyCar and a Honda in IMSA, 
but I would absolutely grab Simon Pagano, who's been up that hill and loves rallying, and I'd ga- grab his engineer, Ben Bretzman, who's just a, a phenomenal human being, but one of the most curious engineers I've ever met. He loves challenges, so me with that Subaru and some time to get it where it should be, I would throw the uh, good old hashtag uh, fish lion, lionfish driver Simon Pagano in there. Let Ben, who's a proper engineer, uh, make it go fast up the hill. That is what I would choose. That would be a lot of fun. All right, we've got uh, a question here from Ryan Terpstra uh, asking about odds. He says, what odds would you give me in Las Vegas at the current top five in points? Finish right where they are at the end of the season. Maybe not in that necessary order, though. So, what what comes to mind there, Mike? Wow, uh, I'm, nev- I'm not <clears throat> I'm not good at the lottery, and I'm not good at odds. But uh, um, I, I'd say that three out of the five will be be in it at the end. Uh, three out of the four or five, or whatever. I'm not, I'm not sure how deep we went here, uh, but uh, I, I just think that. Uh, that consistency wins championships um, and uh, that simply means um, and everybody I think understands it that uh, you've got to be in the top five at every race and, and, and if you're in the top five you have a chance uh, winning races uh, is a great multiplier but uh, you might win a race not win a championship because you've you, you miserably fail at the rest of them. Um, so momentum is created by consistency, and, and that's what wins championships. Let's go to Mark Founds, who says, Mike, do you as a strategist feel more pressure at a street course versus an oval because passing is more difficult and the race often comes down to the calls from pit lane? Um, I'm not, I think I understand the question. Uh, first of all, oval racing is uh, when they call a yellow, <laughs> the pit lane is closed and uh, it's immediate. Um, I, I think if uh, Kyle and Max and Ari uh, continue to call races like they did on Sunday at St. Petersburg, it takes some of the pressure off people that call a strategy. Uh, I, re- I, I kind of reflected on it a few minutes ago about the, the two strategies that were going on there at the front of the race. Uh, Dixon and Newgarden stayed out longer than Power and uh, um, Felix did. They had to because they had to find some open track position to make up uh, uh, they had to find some open track to make up uh, track position. When you do that toward the end of your run uh, you run the risk if there's a full course yellow, uh, instead of being first, second, third, or fourth, be it 15th, 16th, or 17th, because the entire field by then has already stopped, because they do that thinking there's going to be a full course yellow, and if they don't stop, um, they're going to be at the back also. So I think the the stewards called it more like a national terrain road track or tried to. Yeah. That really did help, and I think that both Scott and, and uh, Will talked about that in the press conference. Um, but when you're calling strategy, on a, on a, on a, particularly on a street course that has a lot of 90-degree degree corners and a lot of concrete, 
there's a big opportunity to, to get hosed uh, with the present rules the way they are because they closed the pits. Yeah. Um, so, hey, you feel the pressure every lap. Um, there's no question about it. And uh, um, I've made some big, big mistakes and I've made, and I've called, made some great calls. Um, so, uh, and I know that uh, Roger or Tim or Chip uh, or any of the other people that call these races feel the same amount of pressure when they're uh, when they're leading or when they're at the front uh, because they know how quickly it can go away. It was the one area I must admit, and I think I've told you this before, maybe even with a, a question we've received on the show over the past couple of years, but. Uh, race strategy was just the one thing I, I never felt was a strength, and I know that I improved, but I never got to a point to where I felt confident, at pretty much ever, in that role. Fuel strategy, uh, that I felt more comfortable with. All right, we're we're able to do this. Let's do that. But the actual pit stop timing and strategy, yeah. yeah I, well, I just, let's face it, you don't have to worry about. We didn't have to worry about fuel strategy at St. Pete. True, very true. You know, you've got uh, more fuel than you have laps. And uh, so you have massive windows, uh, which means you can stop short uh, each time and still make it to the end. Uh, You just knew that you had to get to lap 75 or 76, whatever it was, uh, so you wouldn't have to come back in and top off at the end. But everybody made that. Everybody made that. The fuel wasn't even a wasn't even. I don't know if they talked about it on television or not. Because if they did, they should have been talking about something else. Yeah. Uh, because you can make the number, and you can't make you can't you cannot run full rich <laughs> and run out of fuel. It's not going to happen at St. Pete. Now, some of the other races, it does happen. But with St. Pete personally, with the way it works out, uh, fuel savings is not an issue. And I, and I think that's really what IndyCar needs to have uh, because that way everybody's racing and nobody is saving fuel. Um, and uh, even the people that can't save fuel don't need to worry about it, which makes the race even better uh, because you don't have these people who, who don't understand how to do it going so slow on the racetrack that they impede the race itself. Uh, so I think it was well called on IndyCar's part with what they did there with the fuel allocation and uh, made for a really good race. Next question is it's more of a comment, and I'm going to second and third it. It comes in from Henry Chapman, who says, can we get a petition started for the racing gods to change Ryan Hunter-Ray's luck? It's comical at this time, and it stings as a fan of his. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I wrote in my season preview uh, a couple days before the race that I, I just had to believe there were no more cartoon anvils waiting in the skies to drop on him as it did on Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner and so many other cartoons. I just had to believe the, the supply of Acme anvils had run dry, Mike. And, and damn it, nope, it wasn't. Uh, and so... Hunter Ray, who's, you know, he's just an excellent human being and a great sport. Uh, I just happened to tweet during the race, it strikes again, Cartoon Anvil 1, RHR 0. And I didn't even tag him on it because I didn't want to, you know, exacerbate the, 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 the bad feelings. And he just happened to, I guess, see it in reply and said the uh, funny slash sad thing is, 
I thought about your cartoon anvil analogy almost right away. <laughs> and I'm like, oh no. Even Hunter Ray is picturing my silly cartoon anvil falling on him. So, yeah, I'm with you, Henry. Uh, I don't know. If, it just seems like if there's someone to get hit by that dang thing, uh, it just has laser sighting on his car. Uh, it, so. didn't, it didn't hit him in Indianapolis. True, true. Uh, and uh, it's hit a few of us at Indy, so uh, um, I, have a, I have a lot of respect for Ryan, and I and I and I think uh, he, he's accomplished an, an enormous amount. And I have a, a great degree of respect because he's been loyal to his owner for a long time. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and uh, um, that that goes a long way. Go here quickly to uh, our friend, uh, Right Turn Lover, another regular contributor to the week in sports cars. Thanks for sending one in for the week in IndyCar. Uh, and asks, are there are the road course Firestone reds and blacks the same for every track, or is there track to track variation? And there is indeed track to track variation. I would also definitely suggest. I believe it was last week's episode, and if I'm wrong, it would have been the week before, but uh, one of the last two episodes, we had the amazing Kara Adams, Firestone's chief race tire engineer, and she came on and explained circuit by circuit the tire differences and what they are bringing to each round and why. So would definitely recommend taking a look back to one of our more recent Weekend Indy Cars because she explains every single thing right there. Let's go to Daniel Kincaid, Mike. Uh, he says, uh, one race in uh, to this Felix and Scott partnership, are there any takeaways you can notice about improvements from previous years, whether it's in the engineering room, team morale, or just general excitement for the remainder of the season? And closes with asking, is the start of 2019 a different feeling than any of the past few years? I think we've had a different feeling since uh, Felix tested with us in October at Barber. Hmm. Um, and uh, I, I don't, it, that's a hard question to answer and be fair with the answer. The, uh, but we'll try. The, uh, um, there's always an, an enormous amount of motivation within our group what and that would be spread across all the vocations within our group but when validation and motivation find each other is when uh, the spirit uh, in the entire room rises uh, because when you have a match set like we presently have uh, match set meaning uh, match set based on result and we're not just talking about just St. Pete it's been the test we've done this winter uh, where we've had a driving force between two drivers and and uh, both sides of the, of the room working uh, to find validation and, and, it, and it's successful uh, that creates this rolling motivated program that, that's hard to stop um, internally um, and, and it is different it, it is very different we've had it that way and we, had, we have had it to where it has not been that way mm. um, and uh, we like it the way it is presently um, 
And when you have two drivers that get the most out of it, it it has tentacles through the entire uh, workforce, both the workforce that you see uh, at the racetrack and the workforce that you don't see that supports the team at home. Um, and, uh, and, and that's at all levels of the workforce. That's from the person who uh, receives you at the front door. It's from the person who writes the checks. It's from the person who drives the truck. It's from the person who, who works the parts department. It's everyone. Um, and uh, um, we're, we're happy about uh, the motivating, motivating force that we have now between the 9 and the 10 car. Robin wrote a really awesome story, and it's one of those, as a writer, I can, I can say, and I'm not taking anything away from Robin, but Robin put together a great story that was 99% awesome because of the person providing the input, and that was Ricky Davis, crew chief yes. on the 10 car. Yes. Just a great story listening to Rick, who's you know, the veteran among veterans, most, one of the most res- truly the most respected men on pit lane, period. Awesome to hear someone who's been through the wars for decades. Normally, by this stage, it is the old hardened, grizzled veteran. Ah, punk, just get in and drive and shut up. And I want two sugars in my coffee. And don't ever look me in the eye. And you know that kind of stuff. And no, Rick, uh, Ricky is just like a kid. Like, ooh, all right, we got one here. We can do things with this, with this uh, Swedish kid. So it's just cool when you see even the veterans are responding to the, this. Yeah, youth. I responded to that on Twitter. I retweeted it and put a comment up out there. And I, I said that Rick had been with us since the lightning bolts. Hmm. The, uh, Rick was a front... I hired. I, I actually hired Rick Davis. I can't remember what year. It was 90, 90, 96, I think it was. And he was on the front end of uh, Zanardi's car uh, as a front-end mechanic. And he's been with us ever since. So he's seen the ups and downs of what it takes uh, to be successful with teammates. And uh, I'm talking about the people that he works with as well as the teammates that drive the cars. And uh, he, he's been at the cutting edge, been at the pointed end for a long, long time. And uh, uh, one of the most, probably the, in my opinion, the best part of Rick Davis is that he is, is so un, he's so unselfish and takes the time to mentor uh, people that are new in the corral. And uh, because he knows he knows full well that you have to rely on every person that works on a race car, and you have to be able to trust what they're going to do. Um, and the worst kind of person you can be is a micromanager. Uh, so he understands that concept concept fully, and uh, he's exactly the opposite of what you described about it. Uh, <laughs> an old grizzled up guy. Yep. You know, he's very, very young in spirit. Uh, he's he's on top of it all the time. He's one of the first guys in the building in the morning and the last guy to leave. Uh, he's still well into what we do, and it's people like Rick that make a difference for us. He's just, yeah, just someone that you enjoy seeing, and it's cool. You know, we've all worked for teams or been part of a team where you've had those down years like you mentioned, and you persevere through them. Those might be the uh, just earning a paycheck years because you don't give any less, but you also know you're not going to get as much back. Uh, and then yep. there are the years where you go, ooh, okay, well, ha, 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 ha. Uh, I'm looking forward to tasting champagne. It's been a little while. 
let's see. Let's go to Jordan Darwin, who asks, Marshall, does the McLaren team have a long-term commitment to the IndyCar series, or do you think they will close up shop as soon as Fernando wins a baby board? You know, Marshall, can I say one more thing about Rick? Of course. Uh, sorry about that. No, uh, no. It, just, it just hit me. Uh, somebody asked the question a while ago about uh, Blair Julian, who is Scott Dixon's present uh, crew chief. Yeah. I can't remember which journalist it was, but a journalist said, well, he's won, he's he's the crew chief for you guys that have won more races than any other crew chief. Hmm. And I said, I don't think so, but I'll look it up because I didn't, I didn't know who it was. So I asked Kelby to look it up and uh, uh, our, our communications guy. And Rick Davis had actually, I think he's won 30 or 31. He was the chief mechanic for Scott Dixon for 30 or 31 of his wins. Wow. Uh, so that, that speaks highly of who Rick actually is. And uh, when we asked him to go over to the 10 car, uh, to mentor some of those young people that were on that car, he, he immediately said, okay, fine, no problem, I'll go do it. And that moved Blair into the position position that he's in today. Um, so um, that's the kind of people that work at Chip Ganassi Racing. Um, and that's, that, that's, is, those kind of people make a difference for us. I remember, no, no, brother, that question sideways. Brother, it's just you and I talking, man. I mean, that's all all this is. I remember I was kind of out of my mechanic phase, moving more into the the engineering, data engineering, and that kind of stuff in in the mid 90s. And just remember working with a couple of folks as I started getting into the Indy Racing League and then CART and whatever. But just remember in that transitional phase for me, I think it was just working on teams where uh, there are some folks who had been around Ricky, had Ricky as their mentor even back then. Just some folks that had worked with him and were talking about how he had a different way of changing tires. And it was just... it made so much sense to them and it made them better uh doing tire changes and just this thing again even back then where it was like oh this this davis guy super good at what he does and his responsibilities but he's got that extra thing where he really takes pride in trying to make not be the let me download my immense you know uh, lordly knowledge but more of like hey let me here's an idea Use it. If it works for you, great. If it doesn't, but regardless, let's all try, you know, let's try and do things better as a group because that's going to benefit everyone. From the outside, Mike, I think some might say, well, duh, isn't that the way it's always done? No, absolutely not. you got a lot of folks who are very protective, um, you know, my way or the highway types. And anyways, he's just always had the reputation of a guy who is totally team first and you see that in so many folks who've benefited from it. So, um, yeah, nothing that's very true. And the other thing that he that ha- he has in common with a lot of us at Chip Ganassi Racing is that we, when we were young and dumb, uh, <laughs> we raced cars <laughs> before we started. Before we gave up racing cars and started working on cars, and Rick was very successful at what he did, uh, racing sprint cars. And uh, so he understands what the driver senses, what the driver wants, and uh, and that becomes priority for people like Rick. Um, and uh, and he keeps it in the practical, 
with a practical application all the time. And when you've raced cars, that makes a big difference with some of the decisions that you do make later on in your life. Let's go, uh, let's jump back to Jordan's question about uh, McLaren and if uh, we think that they might just pack up and say farewell to IndyCar if they were to win the Indy 500. At least my initial impression, Jordan, is one that Zach Brown is the driver behind all of this. And so my just base thought is as long as Zach is the CEO of McLaren Racing, there will be an interest in competing in IndyCar. And if they win one Baby Borg, for example, if they're fortunate to do that, I definitely think they're going to come back and try and win a second and a third. Uh, To me, Zach is someone, uh, his passion for IndyCar, as an American, as someone who spent, you know, many years of his life in and around Indianapolis, I don't think this this is cherry-picking. I don't think this is just trying to go out, grab a big thing, big shiny thing, and if they get it, say, all right, we got it, on to the next one. Uh, this this IndyCar thing is part of Zach's DNA. So as long as Zach is in that job, I believe we're going to see McLaren Racing turning up at least once a year, if not more, hopefully in the coming years, to be part of the IndyCar paddock. If Zach leaves or is asked to leave, do I think McLaren will still be coming to Indy? Probably not. So that, I don't know if you agree, Mike, but I think Mr. Brown is the catalyst for this. And as long as he's there, I think we're going to have the McLaren name. Yeah, I, 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 I we've, we've talked about, I think we've talked about Zach before, uh, publicly and privately, both, uh, Marshall. Oh, if they could hear the, the private things, oh, we just tore him apart. No, 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 we didn't. We didn't tear him apart. The, the thing is, is, is I'm envious of what he's, what he's accomplished as an American hmm. uh, because there were two Americans that ran McLaren for years you know Tyler and Teddy yep. ran McLaren for years Tyler Alexander uh, so Teddy it, Mayer and that's correct and so it has a history of having American people run that organization uh, but I'm envious of what Zach's been able to do uh, because you know frankly I always wanted to be at Formula I always wanted to do Formula 1 Hmm. Uh, I could never find a way in. I tried, and I just gave up. The uh, uh, but to be at the top of any Formula One organization like McLaren, and then to be able to, to create direction that 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 company uh, will put together a strong effort to race at Indianapolis, I think is really really extraordinary. And uh, and I th- and I think you're right. I would hope that what he's doing, no matter where he goes. Uh, uh, within that organization, or whether he's not with that organization, drives that organization to want to continue to continue to be, compete at Indianapolis because um, it's a globally recognized event, uh, and uh, not just by the people in McLaren's home country, uh, but around the world. And I think McLaren is is the kind of company that should be racing in the Indy 500. Amen. Let's go to a really great question from Lance Snyder, who asks, Mike, how does the Honda engineer integrate into your team? Do you get the same uh, engine technician every weekend? 
And uh, what are the test and race weekend responsibilities like for that Honda engineer embedded with uh, both entries? Um, We're assigned an engineer for the entire season. Uh, So it isn't uh, typically one coming in and then leaving us unless for some, we we have had uh, a couple leave us to go back to the homeland or work on Formula One yeah. from time to time over the years, but that, that normally doesn't happen. So you build a relationship uh, with the engine, the engine engineer that is assigned to your entry. So we have one for the nine car, one for the 10 car, and they're with us all year. Uh, so they're part of our team. They're certainly a part of Honda's team, but uh, they then understand the culture of who we are what we want to do on track for each of the sessions, how we want to run our race, um, and they blend in quickly uh, to what goes on, and they're quality people, um, and they're racers. They're not, I, I don't want to say this the wrong way, they're not um, uh, uh, engineers in the truest sense. They're more racing engineers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're they're really behind what we do, and uh, uh, guess what? They come to the barbecue. They're they're all right. So uh, uh, you know they're good people, and we really enjoy having them with us. And as a matter of fact, in 1996, our very first engine engineer uh, was Steve Erickson. Wow! I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, so That's awesome. It goes all the way. And the other guy that we had was. Uh, um, um, Japanese guy that went back to Formula One, uh, Tanabe. Okay. So we had Tanabe and Erickson the first year we ran in 1996 as our engineers. Well, Steve Erickson, now the vice president of Honda Performance yeah, uh, Development. Yeah, so yeah. at least you know who to call if you have a question. That, that's uh, that's certainly yeah. helpful. Yeah, so we've gone back a ways with those guys. <laughs> uh, Corey Matthews asked this question, also posed this to Marcus Erickson, who's coming up next year. Uh, Corey says, uh, what was the biggest kind of what moment during the weekend was there anything that surprised you, Mike, or that you didn't see coming? Um, yes. Uh, New Garden's ability to be able to run 20 solid laps on a set of reds. Changed the race. Uh, won the race. Yeah. Uh, and if you looked at, you know, he looked at the, he walked up and down the grid, everybody had sticker reds on except for him. Uh, so, uh, that I mean I, I think people are probably still shaking their head about that. Um, you know, my hats off. You know, our hats are off to him for that. Uh, he did a heck of a job there, starting the, the the race on scrub reds and and getting away with it. That that was awesome. Yeah, clearly not only was that car working well, but you know the car doesn't the car doesn't drive itself. That guy no, had to not. go out there, <laughs> make speed, make tires last, find grip with tires that aren't as grippy as the others, and or go out there on tires that should be falling off sooner than the others and possibly <laughs> becoming a liability and keep them from being a liability. Uh, that, to me, might be the the biggest, it's similar, same exact thing, Corey, but the biggest what was you know, maybe looking back, uh, I mean, 
you know, I called out that decision to go on to Sticker Reds uh, halfway through the race, uh, right when it happened, as like, ooh, this is either going to be huge, they're either going to win the race or lose the race based on this decision. It was great to see them, you know, obviously do so well and Joseph come out the victory. But I do think now, and honestly, thanks to your question and giving it a, a deeper bit of introspection, I think the biggest what was not appreciating at the time how great of a job Joseph did behind the wheel to excel in those situations. So, yeah, I I think it wasn't just a great strategy call that helped him to win. It was him doing really extraordinary things uh, with either scrub tires or new new reds um, to actually get that car to victory lane. Uh, Let's see. Let's go to Kitch. Quick question. Not the Kitch you and I know, Michael Kitchell, but uh, Kitch Trips from Australia asks, are there any plans for doing live week in IndyCar podcasts at the 500? And uh, says that he's trekking over from Australia and would love to attend something like that. Absolutely. I don't know when. I can't tell you exactly where. But, oh, yeah, we're, uh, we're going to do live podcasts at as many events as possible this year and so Indy will be for sure and it probably more than one so uh, trying to do some other things here too Mike and they're only half-baked ideas I floated one of them by Doug Bowles uh, Indianapolis Motor Speedway CEO need to flesh it out a little more see if it's possible but want to see if we can do some sort of movie night and uh, play some old uh, old old stuff and also some new stuff uh, Bill Riley, son of the great uh, Indy, both IndyCar and sports car designer Bob Riley, found an old uh, 16-millimeter reel uh, of footage shot, a documentary made, I believe, the 1976 Triple Crown with a voiceover done by Tom Carnegie. And so uh, he found that and said, hey, you need to do something with this. So it ended up costing me a small fortune to get transferred to digital, but I'm uh, going to hopefully debut that for the first time. I think it's been seen in, I don't know how long, decades. And then we're also hoping to get the Bobby Unser roast that Robin and Steve Shunk put on last year uh, during the 500. Get that ready to debut that as well. So going to see if we can either do that uh, somewhere on the backside of the pagoda in the little pavilion behind it. So... I don't know if that's going to be a, quote, live podcast, Kitsch, but we're going to try and do a couple of fun things, but there'll definitely be at least one or two live podcasts during the month of May. Mike, here's one for you from Ed Joris. It says, are all Indy cars wrapped uh, with their liveries or are some still painted? Is there a combination? Uh, and also wonders if some teams either have their own d- uh, departments doing that or they get contracted out. So curious if you can share on the world of paint and or wraps for indie cars. Um, I think the wrap has come a, the, the the wrapping of race cars has come a long way. Um, the product that we use today is certainly different than it was four or five years ago. Uh, but the answer to the question, I think, Ed, is that uh, probably. 99% of the people are doing wraps now um, and uh, some do it ha- have the ability to be able to do it in house uh, and some people uh, have it contracted by uh, professional people that cottage industry people that are located in their general area uh, so it's a combination of those two things um, I think it depends on the, t- the structure and size of the team 
whether you do it in-house or whether you have somebody help you with it, um, it takes... It probably reduces the, the time of painting a race car, probably reduces it by maybe a third mm. of the time. It certainly doesn't reduce it in half. Uh, because to rewrap a car, you've got to strip it down and start all over again and, and prep the underside or, or prep the, the surfaces before you wrap the car. So it isn't just peel it off like you would do a decal and, and slap another decal on. There is some, some time to that. And so when that does happen, it's no different than when the, the, the monocoque would be shoved into the paint shop to be painted. Uh, the guys, the guys working on the car can't have their hands on it. Uh, so you have to be able to time all of that, uh, um, with the calendar. Interesting. I know that Arrow, for example, is is a company that does a lot of wraps. I think sports car racing was really their big uh, initial foray, and I, I'm confident, or I think I'm confident in saying they're doing more open wheel stuff too. But to your point, there's yeah. there's specialists, both specialists that will come in and wrap, and then the bigger the teams, uh, they're more likely to have their own graphics department to yeah, handle. Correct, because uh, there wouldn't only be doing cars. They'd be doing transporters and vans. You know, there's a lot of stuff that they would be doing on a regular basis. So, yep. uh, let's see. Robert Thibault asks, uh, why do IndyCars not have power steering? Uh, well, A, traditionally, hasn't been a thing, Robert. And I would say if we look at today's car, the Delar DW12 was never designed uh, from a space and just fitment standpoint to have power steering. So, I don't know. It's a good question to ask with the next generation chassis that's supposed to be here around 2022, whether that's something they would consider adding or if this badge of courage of IndyCar drivers having to be possibly the most fit race car drivers in the world uh, to wrangle these crazy things without power steering, uh, if that will continue to be the standard. So uh, that's a quick answer there. Mike, let's go to uh, Don Davis, who asks about what's the story on Colton Herta being penalized in qualifying. He said that looked pretty subtle to me. He was blocked for, uh, he was penalized for quote blocking Charlie Kimball. Uh, he said that looked pretty subtle to me. And if those same rules were in effect during the uh, the Champ Car days, Alex Tagliani would have been penalized in every single qualifying <laughs> session. <laughs> ah, we get to throw Tag under the bus. How funny. Um, yeah, I mean, when when I spoke with Colton after the race, just the race, he did mention the, the Charlie thing, and he said, yeah, I blocked him. There was no uh, – he didn't try and, and deflect that at all. I do know that he and his camp were pretty darn mad when the penalty came down, so I think with, a, you know, 24 hours to reflect, maybe had a different view. But I don't know if you saw that replay at all or if you had any feeling on that, but – uh, I, I did not see the replay. Um, and, you know, in the timing stand, you don't get to see every replay, or you can't turn the dial and bring it back up so you can see it. Yeah. Uh, so I, I did not see the replay. And, I, and still, to this point, I haven't seen it either. Yeah, no worries. So I don't know what happened there. I, I, I saw, I read Colton's uh, uh, answer uh, to somebody in the press about it. And, and I know he said that they were, they were planning to do just two time laps, whereas other people were doing three. So they cycled out in the middle of all these people doing three laps. And uh, he couldn't afford to, to give up 
uh, an extra lap to get up to speed, he had to go. Um, and thus came the block. So I, I didn't actually see what transpired on the racetrack, however, to understand it. I'll just mention this, too, and it's not specific to Colton or this situation, Don, but it does seem like IndyCar street courses in qualifying tend to produce more, quote, blocking penalties than pretty much any other round. Uh, and St. Pete almost always has some sort of thing like this, if not two or three or four. So, you know, a little bit of it is, is circuit-dependent. Uh, it still is amazing, though, Mike, time to time. We can go to a four-mile circuit like Road America, and there's still folks saying that they felt like they were blocked. And it's like, yeah. are you kidding me? You've got this giant yeah. track. It's it's. We don't have all cars on track at the same time, and you're still complaining? Anyways. Well, and here's, here's the reason why those things happen in qualifying. Uh, most people, what they do is they go out and they run two or three time lapse, time lapse now on black tires and then they come to the pits and they do two or three time laps on red tires so if you are from the center of the pit lane rearward you are up against the clock all the time as soon as you leave the pit lane that might have been one of the reasons that he decided they decided strategy wise during qualifying to do two red red time laps instead of three by the time you, you do your laps it's now you, you find a place at the beginning it spaces you out you're probably behind everybody else at that point where he was located in the pit lane I'm sure he was by over a half a lap mm. to the people that are cycling in yeah yeah okay so he, he then finally cycles in on black tires now they have to find a place on the racetrack because now everybody's more spread out uh, so where they are in the pit lane determines probably what they're going to do and how they cycle out. Yeah, You've got to get all the way down the pit lane and onto the racetrack without impeding somebody else's progress as you come out and then cycle out and find a place and get up to speed by the time you find the timeline. Um, so it's not as easy as it looks uh, because you, the, you have short time intervals for qualifying uh, all the way to the end, all the way to the Firestone Top Six or Final Six or whatever they call it, sixth thing. And um, um, so you're always up against the clock. And if anything happens to stymie your growth there, you're really screwed. Uh, so there could have been some of that going on there too that uh, uh, contributed to what happened. Crazy. Crazy, crazy. All right, let's move to... Uh, Colin Young. So this is one where we got a great question and then an answer from IndyCar race director Kyle Novak. So Colin says, <coughs> excuse me, when Ryan Hunter Ray's engine blew, it looked like the safety truck drove the wrong way up turn one countercourse on the front straight to get him. And a couple of cars got a scare as they went through the smoke screen from Hunter, Ryan Hunter Ray's engine. Do you know if there was any discussion among race officials about a near miss? So I sent that over to Kyle, who sent this back for us. He says, Hi, Colin. Thank you for your question and great observation. We utilize a team broadcasting frequency that all IndyCar teams are required to monitor during all sessions, including the race. Uh, one of the main purposes of this radio frequency is to advise teams of the movement of safety vehicles around the circuit and where we expect those vehicles to be 
especially during a full course yellow condition, such as when Run Hunter Ray's engine expired on the front straight. Additionally, the instant messaging system, local flagging procedures, and advanced knowledge of the routes and locations uh, for safety vehicles are all resources that help our competitors and safety trucks interact in the tight confines of a street circuit such as St. Petersburg. So while it may have looked close on TV, the recovery of the 28 car went exactly as planned. So there you go. And I like that, Mike. Ask a great question. Get a great answer from the person in charge. Uh, yeah, and, and that group of people are really on, t- on top of it with the radio as well as the instant messaging s- s- uh, system. But frankly, we listen to the radio. Uh, for us, IM is almost secondary. I mean, because you're so busy uh, with what you're doing, with all the screens you have in front of you, including instant message, that when they broadcast over there, frequency which we monitor uh we're immediately on it and uh, what you what they do on im is is basically repeat what they've said because they think well maybe maybe they didn't hear it hmm. Got it. <laughs> uh so it's, it's 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 a great system uh to have both in place um but uh i honestly can say that i don't think they've ever not kept us informed Next question, Mike, and I'm going to try and get through this one quickly here. It's regarding the uh, the ongoing topic that flared up last week. Well, it had been uh, flaring up for a number of weeks, but it really hit a fever pitch last week regarding international TV rights in a number of places. Canada certainly a big topic. Australia, Latin America. Uh, so I'll touch on this quickly here. Peter Santi says, regarding international TV coverage, as an American living in Austria, I used to be able to watch IndyCar on a cable channel called Sport US, which showed a wide range of US sports. It makes It's a great name since that's what they do. Uh, however, as that channel has been replaced by an eSports channel, I was happy to still be able to watch the race via the DAZN, that's the one spelled, it's all caps, D-A-Z-N, which looks like DAZN, but it's pronounced DAZN, I guess. Uh, The DAZN streaming service, which I just signed up for to watch IndyCar. He says, given the wide variety of U.S. and other sports I can watch live or wherever I want for less than 10 euros a month, I don't know why I would go back to having a cable or satellite TV package uh, when I go to the States, as this is an awesome service. He says, as was the case that IndyCar has come late to the esports market, do you think the poor international TV deals are simply due to the fact that IndyCar is not keeping abreast of the rapidly changing trends in digital entertainment and not being bold enough to try and be a leader in this effort? Um, How is this, Peter? I don't know if this is going to be the exact answer to your question, but I know it's just something that I thought of in maybe a wider capacity. So I mentioned uh, the the onset of Mike and I uh, starting our segment here that we have a question or two being answered uh, on the TV front uh, by Stephen Starks, IndyCar's VP of uh, Promoter and Media Partner Relations. Uh, Stephen, I like a bunch, and I think he is a very talented person who, in terms of primary responsibilities has been the person working on and setting IndyCar's calendar. Hey, we're going back to Monterey. Well, Steven's the guy negotiating, making that happen, and so on. And we're going here. We're doing. That's been Steven's thing. IndyCar's calendar, working with promoters, making that happen. 
Um, IndyCar made the decision when they uh, assigned a exclusive TV contract with NBC. That's stepping away from a split contract with both NBC Sports but also ABC slash ESPN. Well, ESPN International had handled the international distribution on IndyCar's behalf. When that relationship ended and everything was shifted to NBC, as I understand it, uh, this led to the formation of IndyCar's kind of own media distribution group, and they effectively took this on themselves. At least for what comes to mind, Peter, I don't, it doesn't feel to me like IndyCar is not aware of current trends uh, in such in terms of live streaming, like you mentioned with the zone and whatnot. They've tasked Steven with also doing this, and there are others who have helped as well that they've hired. Um, the person who used to run the sports side for Rogers in Canada, uh, actually the one that they used to negotiate with for the package that folks had and seemed to like, uh, he left and IndyCar actually hired him to help negotiate uh, what they have right now. So I would just say, as it appears to me, Peter, it's a case of IndyCar having had a well-oiled machine in ESPN International handling these things. Now, in their first time having to do all of it on their own, so many regions, so many broadcasters, it hasn't been the, the easiest or most glorious uh, first go-round. And I feel bad might be the wrong word, but I have a lot of empathy for Steven uh, Starks knowing that you know his primary task is being the main person on IndyCar's side uh, with promoters putting the calendar together, negotiating, and so on. He's really been doubled up here. All right, now you're doing all of our international TV deals too, uh, and as with some help, as I mentioned. But I just it feels to me like you're asking a lot from someone who's already completely flat out doing his primary job, and I think as they've found Mike. There's complexity upon complexity with doing all of these international deals. Yeah, th- this has just maybe revealed how tough a task that it is. Um, I don't know if this leads to the exact answer, Peter, but I-, I think they know. And if they didn't before, they certainly have gotten a feeling for it over the past week with a lot of feedback from folks saying, Hey, uh, I don't care what deals you came up with for a year or two or three with whatever regional broadcaster, international broadcaster, uh, do something so we can get it if we want it. Don't leave us out in the cold if your deal with, you know, whatever, Azerbaijan TV uh, only allows limited coverage or not this or it's only streaming, no no broadcast. Just give us a universal solution. I think they've come to that knowledge if they didn't already have it. Uh, but I would say that, yeah, this has just been a really tough thing, clearly, for them uh, to really try and you know achieve parity with what they had through 2018. Uh, let's see. Let's go to Michael Goodyear, who says, Mr. Hull, what historic driver, Ganassi or not, does Felix Rosenquist remind you of, and why? Uh, he said, I hear everyone praising his immense talent, which is obvious. But I'm trying to put it in perspective as someone who hasn't followed his international career closely. Good one. I, I think that's a really good question, and uh, uh, not the first person to kind of pose that question. 
Um, enormous raw talent. Who does that remind you of? Um, <laughs> uh, but but every driver is different. Uh, but what's in common is exactly that enormous talent. Uh, and uh, uh, he he's eyes wide open with enormous talent. Uh, that was a lot like Juan Montoya, uh, to be honest about it. Uh, but certainly a very different personality, a different person entirely than Juan. But it does he does remind me of Juan in in, in certain ways uh, because he he's he's the package. He is the package, and uh, uh, I think. He will move that package along in a totally different way, uh, and uh, uh, he'll make us all proud. Well, if he ends up being anything like Monterrier, yeah, this is going to be the best thing ever. Uh, let's go to a question from Kyle Brown, which brings our man, IndyCar race director, Kyle Novak, back in. So Kyle says, Marshall, track limits are always a hot topic at Circuit of the Americas. Have you heard anything from race control about how tightly they will be enforced? For me, personally, I know that he he knows that I hate that expression, me personally, because it's saying the same thing twice. Uh, for me personally, I remember an IMSA race where race control allowed drivers to race anywhere that was paved at the outside of the corners. I thought that racing was quite entertaining. Uh, there was so much space that drivers could take multiple lines through a corner, and there wasn't talk of inconsistent enforcement. And so, Mr. Novak says, Hi, Kyle. Thanks for your question. He says, Track limits at newer circuits, such as Coda, are always a hot topic in the motorsports community. Thankfully, and this is a part I appreciate from Mr. Novak's answer, IndyCar has no plans to enforce track limits at Coda because the current course configuration creates a time disadvantage when traditional track boundaries are exceeded. He says, At the open test last month, we placed 50 millimeter perpendicular curbing at the exits of turn 1, 11, 12, and 15, in addition to the permanent 50-millimeter 50, 50 double-wide curbing at the exit of turn 19. It says, in contrast to the last time IMSA visited Coda, these exit curbs were not in place. In short, the quick, quickest way around the circuit for an IndyCar is to use the track as designed. So any off-track excursion essentially is self-penalizing to the tune of at least two-tenths of a second, depending on the location, making any track limits enforcement by IndyCar unnecessary. So, there we go. Uh, Let's see, we'll go to Andy Merrick, who says, Marshall, what are your favorite two or three paddock areas on the 2019 schedule? And says, for Mike, first, congrats on a great weekend. Uh, Let's see, the wind seems stiff at times. Also asks, uh, what kind of wind upsets an IndyCar the most? Head, tail, or cross. Uh, so, what comes to mind on what kind of wind you don't like, Mike? Uh, crosswind uh, is normally blustery, so it's not consistent. Uh, on, on a road track, it's probably not as... It doesn't create uh, as much of a criti- critical element as it does on an oval. Uh, on an oval, when you have a blustery condition, it's really difficult for the driver to be able to have confidence in the corner. Uh, if he gets blown off the face of the earth 
going through that first time, and then the next time he corrects for it, and it's not there, you're in deep trouble. Uh, at uh, St. Pete, we did have uh, some wind variants. It did change, but it was just uh, down the straightaway or in your face on the straightaway, one or the other. So that affected gearing, and uh, we, uh, re- we reacted to that accordingly, but uh, there wasn't anything really uh, that affected us there. As for the two, maybe two to three spots in terms of paddocks that I like, Andy, that's an interesting one. I never really thought about that. Uh, I would say Road America comes to mind because you can see the speed of the cars flying up the hill. And uh, depending if you wander down towards the uh, the end of pit lane entering the circuit, uh, which you can do, you can also see the cars piling into turn one. So I'd say that's pretty awesome from a paddock uh, viewpoint. I'd also say Texas, Texas Motor Speedway, uh, very unique. It's just scary. That place is so fast and scary, in particular under the lights. So even being in the paddock there compared to the grandstands, you can see a lot of the track, and it's just ferocious. It really is. So uh, believe it or not, for me at least, some of the the most enjoyable uh, times I can think of being in a paddock during an IndyCar race, just happens to be in and around there at Texas Motor Speedway. Let's go to Holly Mattingly, Mike, and I think this is uh, the first time Holly has written in, so thank you for that, Holly. Says, hey, Marshall, I'm new to IndyCar and was just wondering, why does IndyCar require teams to lease their engines and tires instead of purchasing them from the manufacturer? Uh, She says, my fiancé is a huge IndyCar fan, and he was not able to answer this question. However... He thinks it may be because of cost, but is not sure. Can you answer this for me? Well, of course, Holly. That's what we're here for. Uh, you got two things here. We did have a time uh, decades ago. I think the last time that comes to mind was through the very early 2000s in the Indy Racing League, where teams would purchase their own engines and choose an engine builder, and they owned it outright. Uh, the engine control modules they would own, uh, really it was you know their own, everyone's own thing. Uh, I remember uh, whether it was taking out or, or uh, installing or crating and shipping off plenty of engines to uh, uh, Lord K-Tech, NAC, uh, just the, the Brayton family, all kinds of great folks back then. And before that, I would say... 80s was really the the last time, for the most part, where teams would own their own engines. Not 100%, but by and large, the majority of the 80s, you had uh, the 2.65 liter Cosworth uh, twin turbo, I'm sorry, single turbo V8s, the DFXs. Those were all owned and uh, built by independent uh, engine builders. You had the Chevys come in, which started to be the Ilmore Chevys that were a little bit more privatized. And then as we started creeping into the 90, things definitely became privatized and were not, uh, you know, you didn't buy a Honda and put that in the back of your Ganassi Renard. Uh, that was a special relationship between both brands where, or both companies. And so with, you know, many other manufacturers and those teams as well. But really it comes down to today, uh, the technology included in the engines, that is something where uh, manufacturers are not looking for others to, uh, you know, uh, spin off the, uh, the the nuts and bolts and take a look at valve covers and in the crankcase and in the plenum. And yeah, 
a lot of money spent, a lot of technology, private uh, IP, if you want to call it that, where uh, Ilmore and Chevy do not want their motors just open and exposed. Same with Honda. And so, honestly, it is just expertise that they want to maintain 100% control over. Therefore, they are leased. Uh, I don't want to say oddly, but it might come across as odd that Firestone, which is the sole tire supplier, they have no competition in IndyCar. So that might be a case where you'd say, well, why don't they sell them? There's, There's no one looking in, in theory, to steal that knowledge that they have. Uh... They might not have a good year or a Michelin or whomever that they are fighting against, Holly, but there's so much knowledge and institutional expertise that go into their IndyCar tires that they just simply do not want those to be the actual things that can be sold and possibly make it into the hands of another brand. Even if they aren't competing in IndyCar, I'm sure there is something that other brands could learn by diving in and cutting into their tires and figuring out things. So... I would say, by and large, the answer is just simply maintaining control over their knowledge. And that knowledge, whether it's through metal in an engine or rubber in a variety of compounds in tires, really remain in their own hands. Uh, And that's where the trust is built in with teams. And even down to the engines, Mike, as you well know, uh, your guys, Ricky Davis and uh, the crew in the 10 car, might put a new Honda engine in engine in for the next race at Coda, for example. Uh, well, Ricky doesn't exactly flip the ignition switch and hit the, the, the starter at the back of the car and just fire it up. Nope. Got to have someone from HPD plugged in because, you know, engines do not start without the blessing of a, a Honda or a Chevy. So there is definite control maintained even though everyone, uh, including the engine technicians you mentioned that are embedded, um, there, there are certain pathways and lanes that folks stay in and respect. All right, Mike, so let's get to our final range of questions and bid farewell to our 500th episode with you and then say hello to Marcus Erickson and then Parker Thompson to close. Uh, The one and only David asks, can Mike talk about strategy software that gets used during the race? Uh, Does it model? And what does it model well? What does it not do well? Is it proprietary or a commercial product? Um, I I can't speak for other teams. Ours is, first of all, proprietary. And it's it's, uh, uh, software, you know, it's based on what we've done. Uh, there are people that commercially sell that, um, um, and we've looked at the product. It's a good product, um, but what it is is a compilation of history of what happens at the races, and then you can plug in uh, where you are, what's going on, uh, but it doesn't call a race for you. It just gives you probability, uh, and it still comes down to, to what the driver needs, what the engineer wants for the driver, uh, and uh, what circumstances prevail. Uh, and uh, let's face it, uh, St. Petersburg would be a, a good example that would have gone against everything that street, street racing strategy would have told you to do hmm. because of the way, the infrequency of full course yellows. Yeah, we did not. We, that that okay, wasn't a big so part of the day. If you would have relied totally upon a software, a 
a software-driven program for street racing from IndyCar history, you would have been hosed. Uh, so I, I think that uh, you, you have to use some common sense and practicality about what you're doing when you do look at uh, what the, num- the numbers offer you as options. Interesting. And if hopefully it ever gets to a point that it's awesome, we're just going to have to come up with a life like Michael Dummy so folks won't know yeah, that you've got your feet, okay. your feet kicked yeah. up on the beach during the race. Uh, let's go to John Sable, who asked a question that Stephen Starks answered. John says, I know hindsight is twenty twenty, but did IndyCar ever seriously consider the Formula E approach for their worldwide distribution of coverage? For those who don't know, in some countries you can watch the race and all the sessions from the weekend for free on YouTube. I would think this model for a season or two until TV could be worked on and IndyCar could be more beneficial in the long run than the current awful deal for Canada and Australia. I'm having a hard time figuring out how IndyCar pitches around for surfers paradise in Australia when its product can't be seen live there. But if you allow it to be viewed for free for a year or two versus having next to no one see it while making next to no money on the rights... I think that makes more sense. Uh, To which Stephen Starks kindly replied, We considered many options and multiple territories as we set out to establish media arrangements around the world. He says there is much that goes into this, and IndyCar's desire for exposure uh, is not the only factor to be considered. He says we did live stream the St. Pete race for free on IndyCar.com in Latin America, and that same race was live streamed for free on Sportnet's main website in Canada. So yes, we have considered that where it makes sense. Additionally, the Indy 500, including qualifying, will be live on Fox Sports and Kayo, uh, Fox Sports Australia's direct-to-consumer platform. Uh, We will continue to try to find uh, a way to give our Australian fans even more live content. So there you go, John, with an answer to your question. Uh, let's see. Don Gallagher says, Mike, if Scott Dixon doesn't get hit by the hashtag cartoon anvil, how many different chassis will he use uh, this season? Can you share which ones are used where? We get something like that uh, somewhat regularly, Mike. But yeah, how many chassis are in rotation, say, for uh, Dixie's entry or Felix's entry for the year? Uh, two. Uh, we'd like to keep it to that if we can, uh, but uh, we have two cars in rotation, two chassis in rotation for each driver. So that would be your super speedway, I assume. Uh, that uh, is- we 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 have a car that uh, we've designated as our Indy super or our super speedway car that uh, uh, we spent a lot of time on. Uh, and it would be great if that can get all the way from the start of practice all the way through the race uh, without uh, uh, issue in any way whatsoever. And we've done it both ways where we've had a car that has made it all the way and a car that hasn't made it all the way. So uh, we equally prepare the cars, but we spend quite a time, quite a bit of time on the, uh, the fit and finish of the car, what we call fit and finish, which is, uh, how the aero side of the car, the bodywork side of the yep. car, body tongue and grooves together, uh, and we work really, really hard on that. But everybody does, um, and uh, uh, you want to get the the maximum advantage 
at that race uh, because of what it represents. Uh, and then that car would roll into rotation on a regular basis after that. David Faulkner asks a technical question for me. He says, engines, and this actually falls into your world as well, could the Ford EcoBoost engine in the Ford GTs run by the Chip Ganassi Racing Team uh, in IMSA and Le Mans be used either as is or a cheap retrofit version in IndyCar? Um, I would love to say yes, David. I would love for that 3.5 liter twin turbo V6 to be something that we could just drop into an IndyCar chassis today. Two main issues. One is its size, and the second one is its weight. And that's not saying the engine is bad or wrong in either department, but it is truly a production-based or a road-based engine uh, that is used in sports car racing, has been to great effect in both prototypes, in the old Ford Daytona prototype, uh, and also now in the uh, road-based Ford GT race cars. But we have a thing in IndyCar where, because these are small and sleek vehicles, the engines are small and sleek to fit within them and to help from a performance standpoint by being very lightweight. So uh, the weight of a production-based engine, any production-based engine, is always going to be something that more or less keeps them from being used in an IndyCar, modern IndyCar at least. And then also the size, the actual footprint of uh, the engine uh, in the back of an IndyCar chassis certainly would not work in the current Dallara. Could a could the next Dallara be designed to accept a bigger engine like it? It could. Just that's always something where you know, uh, since these things are not dropped into a cradle, where in theory you know kind of plug in any engine that would fit into the cradle and you can go. That's not really an option here. Uh, we do have a fully stressed engine uh, in IndyCar, uh, not necessarily the case in GT cars. So there's just a couple of practical limitations that wouldn't make this work. But if IndyCar really wanted to make road-derived uh, engines something that would be possible in IndyCar, they could do that. It just would have to be part of the next-generation design process when that new chassis comes in 2022 or so. Um, and David also asks, uh, additionally, could the AER turbo engine used uh, with the Baikalis, uh, formerly used by the Baikalis LMP1 non-hybrid prototype team, engine also be used? Uh, and he says, engine supply is Indy Lights winner's uh, prize for winning the title there. Again, uh, that is a bespoke engine, uh, just again, size-wise. If you look at these 2.2-liter twin-turbo Chevys, and Hondas, David, I mean, they're just barely even there. <laughs> they're tiny. They, they are narrow. They are short. They are, I mean, they're just very compact uh, little marvels that make a lot of power without anything in terms of hybrid assistance or otherwise. So, uh, yeah, again, just comes back to that size standpoint and also the weight. So, uh, again, if IndyCar were to change their mindset on how to do such things in the future, I'd imagine both and many other engines could be an option. Still might be a bit of a technical challenge, though, Mike, because you're never going to get a, a road-based engine down to a purebred, uh, designed-from-scratch racing engine weight. And so you know that could play with vehicle dynamics and performance a little bit in a uh, negative capacity. 
Uh, well, you know, if, if uh, Doug Yates was uh, commissioned by Ford to build an Indy, uh, an IndyCar engine that met specification, there's no doubt in my mind that it would be a very competitive package. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it would represent the Ford brand quite well. Uh, but uh, that that that's that hot potato question that continues to come at us from from fans all the time and rightfully so because fans identify with brands and uh, uh, IndyCar is working really really hard to find a brand uh, to be the third engine company uh, in IndyCar racing going forward from 2021 onward Um, and hopefully they can and uh, some of that question then would be answered I think I just came up with an idea, Mike. One of us, or maybe one of our listeners, hopefully can perfect um, Edsel Ford's voice, and we need that person to call Doug Yates and say, "Doug, it's uh, it's Edsel. We're a go on an IndyCar engine." You know, I mean, you know, maybe we can kind of trick Ford into IndyCar, and uh, well, right, maybe we shouldn't. Uh, Jordan Darwin says, "Hey, Marshall, the IndyCar Series YouTube channel recently posted." The 1998 Texas race, where Greg Ray led late but finished runner-up to Billy Boat. What races as an engineer do you remember the most and why? Oh, that just brings a smile to my heart, Jordan, because that race, that 98 race, where I was one of the uh, assistant engineer on that team, the uh, Thomas Knapp Motorsports general racing team with Greg, uh, that was just such a, a wonderful moment for me and for the team. Uh, did finish second, Greg, being from Texas, at uh, this Texas race. It was almost the perfect, perfect result. Um, we had an in-car camera for that, and they sent us, the, the, the kind folks at BSI sent me a FedEx box with, I don't know, it must have been two dozen copies of it, and I just watched it over and over again. I didn't watch each VHS tape, but, you know, those were handed out, but uh, just watched it over and over again because it was just fascinating. Greg was so good on high-risk ovals. So that one, I would say, definitely stands out because we came close to winning. Uh, I never was never part of a winning team in IndyCar. Not a big surprise because most of the teams I worked for were smaller or midsize at most, not a Ganassi-like uh, yes, I know I will be a winning mechanic, engineer, or whatever if I join them type operation. But that stands out. Uh, the pole position that we got uh, with the Sam Schmidt team in 2001, which was uh, the team's debut in IndyCar at Richmond, stands out as a real surprise. Not only for the other teams, the bigger teams, it was a surprise for us as well. We weren't exactly sure what we did to get it, but we got it, so we celebrated. That was with Jacques Lazier driving. I would just say quickly, Jordan, uh, the one that stands out, the one that I'm still most proud of, just knowing how much the Indy 500 has meant to me my whole life, was in that same 98 year with Greg Ray, where we qualified in the middle of the front row with no sponsors. Our primary sponsor pulled out genuinely on the way uh, to loading into the speedway for the month, uh, and we were more or less uh, dead in the water financially and had barely enough to get through practice and qualifying and so, with no money but with a stu- supremely talented driver, 
Thomas Knapp was just a savant when it came to race engineering. Yeah, to qualify in the middle of the front row in a car that was bare. I mean, it had it was just black. It was a black Delara with white wings and some numbers on it, basically. Um, that was pretty amazing. We ended up leading, I think, you know, 10, 15 laps or so. Then the thing broke. But just as a stupid little team, Mike, from uh, Northern California, from Novato, California, which if you're driving to Sears Point, a.k.a. Sonoma Raceway, uh, driving north from San Francisco, it's the little city on the right before you make the, the right on to uh, Highway 37 and drive across uh, that final stretch to uh, Sears Point. But just a little team coming out of Atlantics and Indy Lights and not knowing anything about oval racing for the most part, that was just pretty cool because we were punching so far above our weight and we didn't have a result that got us to victory lane, but that was fun. Real David and Goliath stuff to feel like we were doing something pretty cool uh, without feeling like we really even belonged. So um, let's go to Travis Bender as we wind down, Mike. Uh, Travis says, hey, Marshall, uh, could success this year in Indy Lights be the fuel that Zachary Clayman DeMello needs to ignite a permanent career in the top tier of U.S. motorsports? He says that's a huge move to take a step back from IndyCar for a year to Indy Lights to improve. Well, I'd just say this very quickly, Travis. This wasn't the plan that uh, Mr. Clayman DeMello was really looking at. Uh, he was under the impression he would have the funding to be in the second Carlin Racing car for the year. And they got fairly far down the road in discussing that possibility. And then he had his primary sponsor say, nope, we're done. We're not, uh, not just with him, but we're pulling out of racing in general, that being PaySafe. Uh, PaySafe is the one that funded uh, his entire, everything that he did last year, Mike, with the Dale Coyne team and was on that car for the whole season as its primary sponsor. So it looks like they've come back a little bit for uh, Zach in Indy Lights. Uh, he won the first of the two Indy Lights races last weekend at St. Pete, so great for him. But I wouldn't position this Travis as him saying, oh, I need to go back and, and learn more uh, after getting a taste of you know doing whatever it was, six, seven, eight, ten IndyCar races last year, just strictly budget-dependent. Uh, I'd also say uh, he was not exactly a complete puzzle last year. But I was impressed by the kid in IndyCar. You know, he had already had two years of lights experience, so this is now his third. Uh, but, you know, he didn't make any major mistakes, was really good at Indy, wasn't expecting to be at Indy. He stepped in when uh, Fittipaldi got hurt. So, you know, he, he strike, struck me as someone that, with a couple more years in IndyCar, could be a pretty solid contributor there. I don't know if we're talking a future champion, but... He didn't look out of place. I don't know if you agree with that, Mike, but the kid didn't look out of place, at least no, as I, I saw him. I, no, I, 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 I don't know what happened to uh, have him do what he did, but he represents himself extremely well uh, in a very positive manner out of the race car. And then what he did on the racetrack at uh, St. Pete was extraordinary. Uh he hasn't missed a beat by, by doing what he's doing. And I've always felt that drivers need to drive race cars. They don't need to talk about the fact they should drive race cars. Uh, and you have to be attached and associated with the sport all the time. 
for more than one reason. One reason is you're improving yourself every time you drive a race car. If you can drive something on the off weekend, you should be doing it, especially at the intermediate at the intermediate level. The uh, uh, and you're always in the sight of the people that potentially you will drive for next. That's and that's the key to ladder series racing. That's the key to IndyCar series racing or any other form of motorsports for that matter. Um, so I, I think what he's doing is the right thing. Um, he's driving race cars. Certainly isn't the wrong thing, and I like the kid too. He's he's you know, you got a, a very interesting personality. Um, yeah, uh, plus he is French Canadian, which adds a nice angle to the uh, I guess the English Canadians in Hinch and Wiki and and whatnot. So yeah, little uh, Canadian diversity, not a bad thing. Let's go to Fernando Diaz, who says it seems like Chevy doesn't have a lot of quote A teams outside of Penske. While Honda has Ganassi, Andretti, Schmidt, Ray Hall, is there some type of incentive uh, or that the manufacturers happen to offer to be with them? And he says, Ganassi's been with both and went back to Honda, but why? Do the manufacturers have much say in the team's uh, driver selection? Uh, I mean, I can answer some of that. I know, Mike, obviously you, you aren't going to answer on the business side uh, of, you know, uh, incentives or otherwise, uh, because it wouldn't be correct. But you know, Fernando did write about this and have written about it a number of times that you know, Chevy would love to have more consistent race-winning teams in its family, and they're obviously hoping that Ed Carpenter Racing, AJ Foyt, Carlin, and so on will help them to get there. They do, though, <laughs> have a pretty good thing, Mike. In uh, 2014 IndyCar Series champion Will Power, 2016 IndyCar champion Simon Pagano, 2017 IndyCar champion Joseph Newgarden, plus the 2018 Indy 500 winner in Will Power, and a certain guy by the name of Elio Castro Neves, three-time 500 winner, coming in uh, again for the month of May. Chevy might not have a lot of winning teams at the moment, but it does have one that wins a lot and is always a threat and just won the season opener and qualified one too. So would they love to have more support in that capacity? Yes. Um, every team, you know, every manufacturer would, uh, if anything, you know, Honda has been blessed to have a bunch of great teams for many years. Andretti was a Chevy team initially, uh, came to Honda uh, Schmidt's been with Honda the whole time. Rahal's been with Honda. Ganassi was with Honda, then moved to Chevy, then moved back to Honda. So, you know, things move around a bit. Um, but I would say loyalty is something that, you know, in many cases, it is something that means a lot and you know, tends to keep teams with who they are with. Also say for sure that as some of these teams, Fernando, their contracts come up with either brand, uh, there can be some pretty heavy offers and incentives um, that are proposed. And whether they're accepted or not, you know, you see uh, based on what the team happens to need. Um, I, how's this, Mike? And, and maybe you can speak on this, maybe you can't. But I know that when Target... Uh, decided to step away from IndyCar after 27 years or whatever crazy number. I mean, Honda 
Honda being a long-term partner of the of the team, um, certainly I know was was a really good sense of comfort, if not foundation and reinforcement, while the team was looking for uh, sponsors to you know step in and, and fill that void. What ended up becoming PNC Bank. So you know it, it's not just the technical. It might not just be the financial side, but you know there there's. It's amazing how much teams and their engine partners really do matter to one another. I think uh, you, you hit it on the head at the beginning uh, when you when you describe the drivers. The drivers win races and the drivers win championships. And we sort of had that question at the beginning about the odds, the, the guy that asked the questions yeah, about the odds. Ryan. Um, and... Uh, uh, it was mixed, wasn't it, at uh, St. Pete at the pointed end of the race. Uh, you know, you had Chevys and Hondas running at the front. And uh, maybe there are more Hondas with better teams. I, I don't know how to define what a better team is. I, I define it more about who is the better driver for an entire season, hmm. not who is the better driver for one race. And... Uh, um, I think, you know, you have a choice when your contract comes up as to what you want to do. And either company will entertain you and sit down and talk to you, and they, and they will accept you with open arms. They don't push anybody away. Um, and so I think it's a, mat, a matter of the timing at that moment in time, matching up your people with their people, the, your culture with their culture, and then making the decision as to what goes on. Um, and uh, frankly, on the business side, there's not really a difference between the two companies. Hmm. Uh, you know, in the fine print, there might be some differences, but there aren't uh, carrots there for you to, to grab hold of. Um, so I, I think it's just a matter of uh, what you want to do and where you're trying to go and how, how, to, how you're trying to promote your product, both at and away from the racetrack. Uh, with your manufacturer. Down to the last two questions, Mike, before we let you go and move on to Marcus Erickson and Parker Thompson. Uh, we're going to go to James Jordan here, ask a question that Stephen Starks from IndyCar answered. James says, are there any new oval races IndyCar is wanting to add in the future? says, I would love to see the triple crown back in IndyCar. And Stephen said, well, we're not just focusing on ovals. We're always looking for opportunities to add great venues and events to our schedule. With that said, there is no required, quote, magic number of ovals or events for that matter. Uh, Rather, we review our schedule uh, holistically and create the best combination we can in the hope that our stakeholders, including fans and drivers, will continue to believe that IndyCar is the best open wheel racing product out there. I find that answer interesting uh, in the sense, Mike, that 17 races were down one oval, I believe, from last year. Uh, but we are, you know, we're heading back to Monterey, heading back to what you and I would call Laguna Seca, what uh, others would call WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca. We're going to Circuit of the Americas for the first time. Interesting expansion of new and old uh, road courses there. So, you know, I think. Oval racing is a huge part of our tradition. I also it don't think it's is. I don't think it's it bad is. to try and you know at least for right now try and add some expand a little bit on the road course side to see if there can be 
uh, a return of a fan base to an old favorite and maybe get uh, a new one in Texas? Well, the holistic side of the answer is having well-heeled uh, promoters. Yeah. That, that's really the key to the whole, the, the whole process for any racing series. Uh, as a traditionalist, including myself, I would love to have more oval races. But it seems like the people who promote oval racing today in the United States in a general fashion, the two groups of people that do, don't really want to promote us. Mm. Uh, so that, that leaves a real, real uh, a problem. The people who are promoting us in, in oval racing today are more independent from, you know, they're independent promoters and they do a heck of a job promoting us. Uh, and uh, and we put on a great show when we go, and and the and the fan the the grandstands fill up. So I think the ovals that we have are quality ovals. The racing is spectacular, uh, and uh, uh, if they if they build an oval, we will come. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and uh, provided that they have a promoter that can promote us and uh, and isn't part of a. Uh, 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 a corporate network that promotes oval racing and doesn't promote IndyCar as part of oval racing. And that's what we truly need. And I know we bang this drum somewhat regularly, but boy, uh, we're so thankful to have not just Gateway as a oval circuit back on the IndyCar calendar, but for Curtis Francois, the Balmerito Automotive Group, I mean, they have really set the standard for, as you mentioned, more of the independent-type ovals uh, on how to embrace IndyCar, how to promote IndyCar, how to really make it a big deal, even if you've got other series that show up, just to truly treat IndyCar like something special, promote it that way, and then you look at the folks that turn out and you go, huh, funny, so you make this a big deal, put in a ton of effort, and you get a response. What a crazy idea. So, yeah, part of me wonders. And, you know, Eddie Gossage does a heck of a job at Texas. He promotes the heck out of IndyCar racing. And uh, he loves he loves open-wheel racing, and he's not afraid to say that. Um, and he, he pushes his product very, very hard. Uh, and um, he these days, I don't think it's the credit he deserves for that. Um, and Iowa... Speedway now is back to a Saturday night race. Great, yeah, uh, and, and that'll be a terrific that'll be a terrific venue for us being on Saturday night. There's no question about that. Um, so we've got good ovals. We have great promoters for those ovals. If we could just clone one or two or three more, it'd be it would be fantastic for all of us. Mention one last thing here on the oval front. And this is related to Texas as well. Our friend, the awesome Mike Zizzo, who was a part of the CART family for a long time, uh, who has been the communications director at Texas uh, for a lot of years, uh, has left. He's been backfilled by my friend David Hart, who's uh, just an awesome, awesome person. So I look forward to seeing seeing David uh, here in June. The great thing about Ziz, though, is you've seen him and we've all seen him in the paddock, is he's been kind of a a special consultant to IndyCar on the communications side. And I'll just say this. I trust, Robin trusts, many of us who know Ziz 
we trust in Mike Zizzo for uh, his sensibilities and, you know, provided he is empowered to bring the things that he's done and seen successfully elsewhere, just as an advisor, uh, if Mike's allowed to be Mike and his thoughts are allowed to be received and possibly carried out, I think that's just going to be another you know, organizational level of strength added to the series. So uh, pretty surprised that uh, Texas let him get away, but boy, IndyCar is benefiting from having him just as a, uh, a voice of experience trying to help them uh, fortify what they're doing on the communications front as well. Let's go, Mike, to our final... It's a question, and it's one for me. I don't know if you saw this, but uh, yeah. So in our Sunday post-race wrap-up video that Robin and I did, we Robin happened to mention something about Roger Penske towards the end of the video. He was just starting to say, and Roger Penske looks across, and he was pointing while saying, and Roger Penske... And as he's saying that, happens to see RP uh, <laughs> and his, his uh, amazing wife walking by uh, 20 feet away. And so we waved him over, the race-winning team owner. Hey, Roger, come here. So he came over, and, you know, we both know and love RP. So he came over, and then he kindly dealt with these two idiots. And so I asked him a couple of questions. And when we were all done, uh, we were in a little bit of a confined space next to the Firestone Transporter. Uh, where we were standing was right on the edge of a, a curb uh, with some gr- it was grass right behind the, the little cement curb. And when we were done, I don't know if Robin nudged him, if RP took a step back, but in the video I had to make an edit uh, and mentioned, well, I had to cut that out because we almost killed RP. So William Maxson says, Marshall... What did you and Miller do that almost killed Roger Penske during one of your Racer Magazine YouTube videos? Well, William, and again, I figure we'll close on a little laugh here before we move on with our other guests. Yes. Uh, again, I haven't gone back and done the, the uh, Zabruder tape type uh, analysis of this. Whether it was Robin nudging RP at 82 years old or him just stepping back and not knowing that there was a curb behind him, but... Uh, we almost killed RP because he, uh, we're you know we're talking and just wrapping up, and all of a sudden I was standing on RP's uh, left, Robin was on his right, uh, and so I'm looking to my right, and all of a sudden I see RP starting to do the leaning tower of Pisa falling back, and I'm going, oh my god, we you know, I was telling a friend of mine, it's like that thing in the cartoons where, you know, Bugs Bunny or, or Elmer Fudd is starving and he looks at, you know, Bugs Bunny and instead of seeing a rabbit, he sees a giant steak. Well, I was turning and I'm seeing RP falling backwards and I'm just seeing like the physical manifestation of billions of dollars falling going, oh my God, we're killing Roger Penske as he's falling back. You know, at 82, you're a little more brittle. And so... I reach down and grab one of his arms and luckily slow his fall. Robin does his best. Robin's frickin' 70 years old as well, but he's still strong. And so luckily we were able to help RP cushion his blow. But yeah, uh, we whether it was a trip or an accident, um, we almost killed RP, but luckily we didn't. And his wife said immediately, you are cutting that out. And we said, yes, ma'am, of course. We're not showing that. So... Uh, trust. No, I just have the impression that uh, Roger Penske will be the last person standing 
so uh, oh, completely. You know, like he, he's going to look around and say, "Where did everybody go?" Um, yeah, he's he's younger than all of us. Well, that uh, plus so Robin and I are still bracing for the drone strike. Because we figured there's going to be a, a Penske Corporation drone fired at one of us for the transgression of nearly taking out their leader. But, yeah, oh as usual. And here's the thing. RP is strong as an ox, too. Uh, we both lifted him up. He was fine, completely unshaken and, and, and okay. But, yeah, you just look at that and go, man. I mean, now, granted, there's some people we'd love to knock over. That might be fun. RP just isn't one of them. So thanks to him for being so gracious, of course, and at least so far. Sparing our lives. All right, Mr. Hull, 500 episodes, you, brother, now part of 63 of those. Uh, you know I'm not just saying this, but uh, you know how much I appreciate you, the time that, well, just our friendship, obviously, but also just the time that you make available for me and our listeners and are so giving in that capacity. So thank you to you for taking the time here to help us break down uh, a lot of great questions from folks coming out of St. Pete, the first race of the year, on a lot of topics, a lot of different teams other than your own. And, you know, I mean, I'm going to see you tomorrow here in, in right. Sebring. We'll Sebring, we're going to get after it tomorrow morning in Sebring, so that'll be great. Uh, so, yeah, looking forward to that for sure. And uh, thank you very much for including me in all of this uh, uh, Marshall Pruitt-driven hijinks. It's been a lot of fun. Wow. Uh, really, really, really have enjoyed it, and uh, I'm amazed at the comments that uh, come our way all the time because of it. So it's been terrific. Well, thank you, my friend, and also thank you to the Justice Brothers and Cooper Tires for supporting us and making this possible. And then would also say let's welcome in our man Marcus Erickson, and following him we will have Parker Thompson and Mr. Hall. Enjoy your evening. Yeah, we'll okay. see you in less than 24 hours. Yes, sir. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Marcus Erickson was really happy to see most of your debut IndyCar weekend go according to plan. When we scheduled having you on the podcast here uh, a couple weeks ago, was definitely hoping we'd be talking about a great, at minimum, top 10 finish, if not even better, etc., and didn't quite have that, but I figure before we get to questions from your fans, what did you think of uh, first weekend in general? Uh, reaction from the paddock, reaction from fans? How'd this American racing adventure start off for you? Yeah, um, yeah, it was it was a fun weekend for sure. Uh, first of all, I think that uh, you know, Chile, the track down there was was really cool, uh, really nice setup for the first race of the season. I think they did on really well there in the car and, and this, uh, yeah, the people around the circuit there. Uh, I think the, the sort of the feeling in the weekend is obviously quite different to what I'm used to in Formula One. It's a lot more accessible for fans. Uh, you know, you get, you know, the fans get really close to us drivers and the cars and everything. And, you know, I, I really feel like you can really feel and see how much the fans appreciate that. So I think that was very nice. Uh, and, and yeah, it was, it was great support from, from everyone there. You know, a lot of people wishing me good luck and, you know, were happy to see me there. Uh, also, it was a lot of Swedish fans there, which I wasn't maybe expecting that much. But yeah, it was a lot of Swedish fans there supporting me and Felix. So that was also 
very, very nice. So, so overall, I had a very, very good experience, apart from that little thing that I didn't finish the race. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that in just a little bit. And, uh, I mean, one of the things that stood out in particular, and, and maybe you can just shed some light on this, because I know that a lot of American racing fans, we, you know, we hear perceptions of Formula One and how different it is, and I think there might be a, a stereotype that Formula One drivers are, you know, very aloof or, or distant, but I think some folks forget that before you and, you know, every Formula One driver gets to Grand Prix racing, you know, you're the same guy tr- going up through, you know, Formula 3, F2, you name the series, but uh, before F1, you know, you were as close to fans as ever. I mean, that was par- normal for you. F1 might have been a little bit different, but I'm guessing uh, your first weekend in IndyCar maybe just felt like it was in the uh, the earlier stages of your career. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, it reminds me quite a lot about, you know, my years in, in, in England, in the United Kingdom. I was racing there in Formula BMW, Formula 3, and, and there, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a lot more similar to sort of how the IndyCar is uh, with the accessibility for fans and everything. So it reminded me a lot of that, which I thought was just very nice, but it was not new completely for me. I love that. Well, let's start off here with a question from a friend of the show, that being Jerry Suddeth, who asks, uh, how difficult is it or what is it like to try and, uh, he phrases it, to unlearn traits you used uh, in your years of driving Formula One uh, to getting to drive an Indy car? So it's a curious one. It's one thing to adapt to learn something new, but curious if there's anything where you've said, ooh, uh, maybe I need to stop doing this thing uh, that I've been doing the past few years, just driving style-wise, that might not fit an IndyCar. Yeah, I think I think the, the, the biggest thing with the sort of driving on the IndyCar that's, that's different, in my opinion, to the Formula 1, is just that the Formula 1, especially the last two years with the new regulations, they put on so much downforce, so especially on new, new rubber, you can really, like, throw the car into the corners and sort of it will bite and, and you will get through it whereas the IndyCar now has gone a bit the opposite direction with the with the new aero kits obviously with less downforce to improve the racing and that means that you have to be very precise and very careful in the way you enter the corners and, and what sort of uh, how, how much attack you use in that corner interface because if you try and carry a bit too much speed you don't have the downforce to sort of hold on through the corner. So I think that's been the biggest difference for me, which I've been struggling, especially on like shorter runs, that I'm I'm eager to sort of overdrive the car a bit in the entries, and, and that doesn't help the lap. I mean, I'm in the car, working in a Formula 1 car, you sort of have to do that. So that's been the sort of biggest detail in the driving style that I have had to sort of, yeah, change a bit, uh, I would say. Interesting. So we're going to go to a fun question here from our listener, Curtis Boggs, who says, Welcome to IndyCar. And he wonders, what was your first street car as a kid, and how many times did you wreck that car? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, thanks a lot, first of all. Uh, And then my first car that I actually bought was on my 18th birthday. Uh, So you have to be 18 to drive in Sweden, and I bought it on my 18th birthday. It was a... Uh, 1990 uh, Volvo 740. Ooh. 
same, same year. He was born the same year as I was born. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was that was fun. Uh, you know, real wheel drive. Uh, I think she'll be in Sweden on the icy winter. So I had some fun in that. That's for sure. Uh, I I mean I sort of you know brushed some some snow banks and stuff with it, but I didn't I didn't wreck it. Then I I sold it after a year or something. I sold it to a friend of mine. I think it took about two weeks, and then it's like completely wrecked around like a tree pole or something. So uh, I think it's uh, it, it's not it's not around anymore that poor car, but we had some fun. <laughs> well, uh, as a son of a British and Swedish car specialist, uh, my the majority of my life has been spent driving either Saabs or Volvos, and a nineteen eighty. Volvo 244, I believe, just a big brick. I drove that for 10 plus years, put about 250,000 miles on it, and realized that if I ever wanted to get a date, I needed to upgrade. So I bought a Saab 9000 after that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I know the I, old Saabs and Volvos, that's my sweet spot because that's just, frankly, that was our family story. So uh, good on you for this. I like it. I like it. Good on you for the 740. Uh, let's go to Neil Joseph, who asks, uh, what do you think about the upcoming race at Circuit of the Americas and how uh, IndyCar's race might be, knowing that you've been there, obviously, competing in Formula One? Did you have any takeaways from the spring training test, Marcus, just that gave you a, a feel for what the IndyCar race might be like? Yeah, I think, I think first of all, it's a great track. And if you're a Formula One car or if you're an IndyCar, it's like, an awesome track to drive. It has that mix of the high speed stuff in the beginning of the lap, the very t- tight and twisty in the second half of the lap, and then the long straight. So it's like, it's a great track. It's, it's a, for sure the best of the sort of new tracks that's come the last sort of 10, 15 years. Yeah. I think Austin is the best in, in, in the world of the new track that's sort of emerged the last, the last sort of yeah, 10, 15 years. I think, in my opinion, uh, F1 has great races in Austin because it's a really good track for, for overtaking and stuff like that, which tells me that the IndyCar race there is going to be awesome. I think both to drive, but also to watch. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's going to be a lot of action. And also what I learned from testing there is that it's a very complex track to set up the car because it has so many sort of characters in one lap that I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to be difficult for the team to sort of maximize it and and, and I think we can see it already in, in spring training there. So I think it will be a really interesting weekend, and I think it's, it's great for the series, uh, for IndyCar that we are going there. And, and I'm sure that the fans that, that watch it and, and comes there we will really, really enjoy it. I don't know if you found it odd or strange, but it was odd for me to watch and listen during spring training coming down the super long back straight hearing you and the rest of the drivers just, you know, living almost on the rev limiter for such a long time compared to, you know, the only other open-wheel cars I've seen there being F1, using DRS and just hitting incredible top speeds, but also, you know, not being on the rev limiter so early. So I don't know if that was a strange sensation, but part of me just kept waiting for the uh, rear wing upper flap to open so you'd pick up 15 or 20 miles an hour. Yeah, I mean, for sure, going out on that back straight, I don't know how many times I was, like, looking for the DRS, but, <laughs> you know, didn't, didn't find it. <laughs> but I think, 
I think you know that the long straight that they have there, and also before turn one, with the longer braking zones that we're having in the car as well compared to Formula One, is really going to invite some great wheel-to-wheel action that uh, is going to be great to watch and also drive. Brilliant. So Corey Matthews asks uh, if there was any kind of big what moment during the weekend in St. Pete or anything uh, that surprised you or you didn't anticipate happening, and I guess not including the premature end to your race, but was there anything during the weekend or afterwards you thought about and said, hmm, I don't know if I expected that? I think just the biggest thing was just, the, just that there was so much fans like right there, like I opened the door from the engineering office and it was like fans everywhere and like next to the cars and you know when we were lining up before going into big lane uh, fans everywhere and and also the fact that you know everyone was it was, it was people everywhere but everyone was so respectful and you know was not touching the cars or, or anything like that and you know you, you could tell that there was uh, yeah they were they were racing fans but also respectful and, and, and that was nice to see but I think that was the biggest take that I wasn't you know I knew it was a, a big difference to F1 but I missed it didn't expect it to be like that you know wow. so it was uh, interesting for me but like I said I was very impressed with with first the, the, the knowledge of the fans because everyone I spoke to was really you know into the racing and, and loving being there but also the, the way the fans behave as well yeah, it must be cool getting I guess that kind of warm embrace from folks who, you know, have never met you, but at least know your name and have been looking forward to seeing you. I mean, usually I have folks yelling at me and Robin Miller telling us to go away. So it must be nice, though, at least to have fans telling you, it's good to have you here. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> let's see. Uh, our friend Vincent asks, and this is a good one. He says, how did your testing at Sebring on the short course help get you ready for St. Petersburg? And, and that's an interesting one to, to me, Marcus, because IndyCar teams have been testing on that same exact short Sebring configuration for decades to try and simulate street course setups, uh, since obviously we don't test on street courses. So... Just curious if and what you found in your time at Sebring that you said, oh, actually, that might or did work out once we got to St. Pete. Yeah, I think I can see why why teams have been going there a lot and is going there a lot for, for street course sort of setups. And I think it was, I think you have to, when you're there, you have to sort of pick a few corners that you focus on. So for me, there, you know, like turn one in some way, but especially turn four. And also the last one, turn seven on that short track is like most sort of street course type of corners. Yeah. So when we were there, we were sort of focusing on them corners and, and the balance in them corners. And when we did the changes to really try and replicate more a street course uh, setup. So maybe not as much looking at lap times, but more as focusing on them three corners, how the car was behaving there when we were trying different setup options. And I think for that, it was really it was really helpful, and I think we found a good direction that we could continue to work on in Southeast. How interesting. Uh, let's see, got a question from Tom Cottle here, and maybe it speaks to mindset more than anything, and if you're seeing or feeling anything different in this uh, new American journey. And he asks, if you're having fun with whether it's the testing, the qualifying, the racing so far, uh, is fun something that you 
I guess, allow yourself to receive while, you know, doing your job? Or is that something you try and, you know, not really let factor in, at least while you're busy during an event? I think it's, it's, you know, sometimes you have to remind yourself that you need to enjoy it as well. Because it's so, like, you're in a race weekend and you're so focused on, you know, performing and everything. But during the years, I've learned to sort of remind myself and, and remember, you know, how, how privileged we are to be there and to be, be racing, you know. And and I have to say, in St. Pete, uh, I was having a lot of fun because it was, yeah, like I said, such a great setup there with the, with the track where it was and then also the whole sort of atmosphere there. Uh, it was really the perfect setup for the first race of the, of the season and my first IndyCar race. And also, I think, you know, what I've been really... Uh, you know, enjoying so much is also the competition. You know, the the fact that it's, I don't know, was it twenty two cars within a second oh, qualifying, yeah. or you know, in practice and stuff like that. And you know, that competition is something that I I really enjoy a lot because you know, you know that you can go one session. It's like me; I was P three in one session, I was eighteenth in one session, yeah. and I think twelve <laughs> in another session. You know, so it's like. I was all over the place, but, but it's such a small, small detail that makes a difference. And that's something that's it's really fun because it gets everyone so, like, you need to be on top of your game and you need to really, like, get everything together. And, and that's, for me, it's fun. Like, I really think that's so much fun. So, yeah. So let me ask, you've had a chance in testing and such to obviously share the track with the Team Penske's, you know, and their championship-winning drivers, uh, with Ganassi, obviously, Scott Dixon, the reigning champ, and we can name, you know, Andretti uh, drivers and so on. A lot of folks that coming in, I know you would have seen or been following and said, all right, these are some of the heavy hitters I have to go up against, both team and driver-wise. Curious your thoughts, Marcus, just coming out of the first race weekend where everything matters. Uh, any, I don't want to say appreciations, but any further insights for what makes some of these folks special now that you've had a chance to kind of quantify that, being on track and seeing what makes these various, you know, uh, powerhouse organizations so hard to contend with? I, I think the names you, you mentioned there, you know, I mean, it's, it's, not, you know, it's not by accident that they're always up there. So it's definitely, they are uh, the teams to beat. And, uh, and I have a lot of respect for, for the drivers as well, you know, like Power and Dixon who's been here for a very long time and, and more, but you know, um, there's so much talent in this series and also experienced guys that's been around for, for so long. And you can see that, you know, like they don't do mistakes and they are so uh, good, good drivers in general, you know? So that's been uh, not a surprise for me. I was expecting that, but it's been, uh, confirmed let's say uh, now in testing especially the first race so also I think the fact like you could see in, in St. Pete as well like on Friday the, the Penske guys didn't really look like they were right there and then come qualifying um, they were they were the class of the field but that was also something that was, was quite impressive to see you know before we move to the next question let's stay on the the first race observations so having worked now with your Schmidt, Aero Schmidt Peterson Motorsports team in, again, testing situations and otherwise, what comes to mind after the first weekend in, in hardcore competition? What did you see there that made you say, all right, we've got some real potential? 
Were there any things where you said, okay, here's a couple notes that, at least from my perspective, let's all get together and, and work on these to improve for CODA and beyond? Yeah, I think, you know, I've been analyzing quite a bit from, from, the, from the weekend, and, and I think we, we really, like, we're working really well together. We're doing a lot of things right. Uh, I think one thing we need to improve a bit, and that's uh, me together with the team, is obviously the qualifying, which was a big uh, uh, disappointment. Qualifying that far back was not uh, according to plan, so there we have some work to do. I feel also in testing that's been a bit where we've been so on new rubber, we haven't been able to find as much time as maybe some other people have. So that's something that we are focusing on and trying to improve now for Kota and going forward. But I think what was really nice to see was on Sunday our race pace was, was amazing. You know, I was going from 18, running uh, essentially top, uh, top eight before I retired because if you can't be in the pit of cycle, I was just behind Simon there who was running seven. So, so you know, our race pace was really strong. We were fastest on track for a long time in the beginning of the race when we had three tracks. So we really had a great race car. Uh, so we need to sort of capitalize on that. But obviously to really use that uh, in the best possible way we need to start a, a lot higher than, than 80s on, on Sundays but uh, that's sort of my initial feeling but it is a great team you know and also now when we have the partnership with Arrow as well that's helping us a lot as well on all different areas so there is so much potential and also hunger in this uh, this team that I really see uh, it's going to bring us a lot of success this season I'm remiss in asking or, or broaching this, I uh, should have asked sooner, but so you didn't get to play for as long as you wanted to in your debut IndyCar race. What was it exactly that uh, forced you to stop prematurely? So we got a, a punctured radiator. Uh, we don't really know how it happened. Uh, it just sort of cracked and, and all, the, all the water went out of it. So the water tanks obviously skyrocket and we had to we had to stop the car to, to save the engine um, which was yeah it was very unfortunate because it was just halfway through the race our strategy we made some great calls with some early pit stops to get to get free track you know and we were making up a lot of positions and like I said at a long time of the race I had the fastest lap and, and we were running as quick as the leaders when we had free track so that was really promising and it was feeling like the race was sort of coming towards us just at that point when we had to retire the car. So uh, obviously very disappointed. But it was you know one of those things that I think you cannot you know you can't do much about. It's just sometimes things happen in racing that you cannot really yeah can't, you cannot do anything about. Mm. So Jim Johnstone asks a question that's a little dangerous, but it could be a fun one too. He said, "How do you rate Hinch?" Compared to your previous Formula One teammates, oh Lord, we felt so bad that he was going to be your teammate. Like, ah, oh, he's just the worst person, the meanest guy in every paddock. No, all kidding aside, uh, how does good old uh, Mr. Hinchcliffe uh, rate as as a teammate? You know, someone you're still just getting to know, I guess. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. We're still getting to know each other, but you know, I think everyone listen to this knows that he's one of the nicest guys around you know and that's been I mean I can only confirm that he's been super nice and, and really been helping me getting up to speed with everything within the team within the series and, and also in Indianapolis so he's been really really good like that I, don't, I can't really think about a better teammate to sort of 
come to a new team and a new series. And then also on top of that, you know, he's a he's a great driver and he's super fast and good on the technical feedback and and that's also been nice to see that you know we worked well together already, you know, in testing and also now in Sanctis. You know, we've been really, you know, when we go out, we do a session and then I always go up to him, so he comes up to me and we discuss the car and how it feels and you know that's what we need to have uh, to be able to to go up and fight against his. Yeah, the top teams that you know, the Penskis and Ganaskis and Andretis, you know, we, we need to have two strong drivers that work well together. And I think, you know, that's been really good to to see that with uh, with Henshot, you know, we, we seem to be able to do that. So Michael Goodyear has a question for you about heroes. He says, Did you have a Swedish driving hero growing up? Maybe a Stefan Johansson, Kenny Brack, Ricard Rydell, Matthias Ekstrom. He also is a fan of some of the uh, the older legends, the uh, the Ronnie Peterson, Stig Blomqvist, Bjorn Valdegard, and whatnot. I uh, said there's so many amazing drivers that hail from Sweden, but he's not sure if he had a chance to see them as a kid. Uh, but anyways, just wondering if uh, you had any uh, any heroes from the awesome country of Sweden. First of all, I'm impressed with the, the knowledge. A lot of the Swedish drivers there he mentioned. Um, obviously, m- most of them, uh, you know, growing up, I remember watching Kenny driving in, in IndyCar and in America. Uh, they were broadcasting that on Swedish TV, so I remember watching that with my dad, you know, Sunday night in Sweden. Um, but apart from that, you know, Stefan, he had already stopped in F1 when I was only a couple of years old, so I don't really remember anything from his career, really. Uh, even though he went, yeah, he went to to America, didn't he, for a few years after it? Oh yeah. But yeah, my my, my sort of strongest memory I have is, is probably Ken, watching Kenny race, and then yeah, I was watching Formula One, but unfortunately we didn't have any Swedish drivers in Formula One. Uh, but then, like as I was growing up, since I'm from the same area of Sweden or the same city, like uh, Ronnie Peterson was from, hmm. so like during my when I was growing up and going through my sort of early career, I was learning more and more about Ronnie and sort of how he was as a driver and as a person. And I've got a lot of uh, sort of inspiration from from that. Uh, and you know, I've even you know, I got to know his daughter Nina quite well, so I know her well, and we wow. keep in touch. And I run the in my first ever Monaco Grand Prix in 2014. I actually run the Ronnie Peterson replica helmet. Uh, to sort of honor his yeah. memory, and it was that that race was 40 years since he won the Monaco Grand Prix in '74. So that was a nice tribute, and, and Nina, his daughter, was there that weekend as well. So yeah, it's uh, that was very nice. So cool. Well, I'm going to stay on Sweden for just a moment. I know we've been happy to have two Swedes in IndyCar this year. I mess with uh, Rosenquist whenever I see him and say, really, it's one and a half because he's only about half as tall as you. So, uh, But kidding, <laughs> kidding aside, uh, I know you wish you could have been the guy passing Will Power for the lead and, and almost finishing on the podium, but I'm guessing uh, you definitely were, were happy for uh, your friend and countryman Felix having such a strong rookie debut. Absolutely. 
All right, got three more questions, Marcus, and then we are all done. This one comes in from Ryan Terpstra, who asks, What IndyCar event, besides the Indy 500, are you looking forward to the most on the rest of the calendar? I hear Long Beach is supposed to be really, really good. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. Obviously, like, like I haven't been to an IndyCar race before St. Pete. You know, I, I, I don't really know more than what I know from people telling me. So yeah, Long Beach, I hear it's very good. So I'm looking forward to that. And then I think Toronto, but I think maybe Hinch is a bit biased there, but he, he obviously says all the good things about Toronto, that's the most amazing race ever, and, and so on, but yeah, I'm sure it's good, but maybe he's overselling it a bit. Well, I'm just going to say, uh, if you want, if you are in a need of an ego boost, Toronto's not the place because no one knows that there are any other drivers there other than Hinch uh, and Wiki. No, exactly, so, you know, exactly. but uh, the one thing I can't wait to see your uh, can't wait to see your face after turning your first laps at Road America, because it's uh, yeah. I, I think the sentimental favorite for most fans outside of the Indy 500, just because the circuit's amazing. Uh, it's so American in terms of the food. It, huge fan turnout. Yeah, I, I think you're going to fall in love with that place, along with many other circuits, too. But uh, yeah, yeah. No, that, that one I've heard about as well. So yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, I'm looking forward to all of them, but yeah. Uh, like you said, there's a few where I've had a lot of good things about. But yeah, can't you, wait for all of them. You need to go on about a five pound diet before Road America, because trust me, all the bratwurst <laughs> and whatever else, um, that's part of the enjoyment. This one, uh, this question here that comes in from Jonathan on Twitter, uh, I brought this over for you and I because I just thought it might be interesting to hear your thoughts. Uh, and he he says, hey, with the uh, limitations that the aero screen and the halo, you know, IndyCar has been trying to work through uh, to create more cockpit safety. He asks, do you think there might be it might be time in the near future to change an IndyCar tub to be more like, say, an LMP1 or LMP2 car? Uh, he says he loves the open cockpit now, but is it time to enclose the driver completely and put doors on it or something like that? Uh, he says he feels like it's the only way to make a big leap in safety. So I guess he's the only person who's raced uh, with a Halo who's now an IndyCar and uh, you know will have some sort of additional cockpit safety device coming. Just curious if you think, you know, fully enclosed cockpits might be the, the way to go in the future, or if not. Very difficult question, to be honest. Like, I also, like, I love the open cockpit, and, you know, like, that's always been the, the single seaters, you know, and I think it would be a shame to go away from that, but I also see, you know, the way things are moving at the moment with the halo, with the air screen, you know, maybe it's just a matter of time before it's going to be a, a closed co- cockpit. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a very difficult question to, to, to answer. I think, you know, both in the car, Formula One, and everyone, you know, is obviously pushing hard for safety and trying to improve that all the time, and that's great. Uh, but we also have to remember that, that motorsport and the speeds we're doing is always going to be dangerous to some extent, and it's never it's never going to be possible to make it 100% safe, you know, uh, that's the sport we're in, but, uh, yeah, I think we have steps to see the next, you know, five, ten years where it's going, but I can see it in the future, it's, you 
you might see that all the cockpits are going to be closed. But yeah, I'm not sure if that's the way or not to go. It's a difficult one. All right, let's close, Marcus, with a question I saved for last because I, I really appreciate it. This comes in from Martin Henderson, who says, or who asks, what impact did Robert Wickens have on your weekend? Uh, asking, in way, in what way was he maybe helpful to you, if at all? Uh, and did his presence at St. Pete take any pressure off you or maybe put some pressure on you? I think, first of all, it was we all the whole team, including myself, you know, was super happy to see Robbie there. And also for me personally, it was, you know, he's a big inspiration with the fight he's doing at the moment. And, you know, he's keeping his spirits high. And, you know, just to have him on track there with us uh, in St. Pete was just a huge uh, boost for everyone, including myself. So that was really, really positive. And also, like, more like on a uh, sort of, technical way he was very helpful for me especially on race day before the race because there's so many things to sort of get in your head before the first race which is different in the car for what, compared to what I'm used to and there I was sitting down with Robbie for like 15 minutes on, on race day and you know going through the different things that he had experienced you know here last year on the first race and he was you know about restarts about you know piss outs piss ins and how he was working with the different tools in the car and, you know, all these small details that you sort of have in your head with pedal maps and, you know, all these things. He was just, like, going through that from his memory from last year and he was so helpful for me and, you know, it really helped me in the race to, to have that strong race that I was having. You know, it was, you know, definitely a lot of, a lot of things that Robbie contributed to. So that was, was really good and, you know, we all hope that he will join in, in more races this year and then sort of, his experience and knowledge is very valuable for us. The perfect scenario is some point in the future we're talking about the Aero Schmidt Peterson three car Honda powered team with you, Hinch, and Robbie uh, going out and doing great things. So it's awesome to hear, Marcus, that even though he's not able to get in the car right now, he was not just there in spirit to make every, you know, rise, help raise everyone's. Uh, general emotions, but also played in you know an important role in helping to prep you for your first IndyCar race. Yeah, hundred percent. All right, my friend. Well, so thankful we have you here. I know you've got to run and go get ready for another flight, but thanks for joining us. Your first appearance on our little week in IndyCar podcast. It's also our five hundredth episode on my podcast. So, uh, really glad you're able to join us, brother. I and uh, I'll look forward to seeing you here at Circuit of the Americas in about a week and a half. Can't wait. Bring it on. Parker Thompson, so happy to have you on for your first appearance on the Week in IndyCar podcast. Not only am I happy to have you on, really stoked to see you just mop the floor with everybody last weekend at St. Petersburg in the Don't Call It Pro Mazda, call it Indy Pro 2000 series and let's start here so looking at the preseason entry lists who's going where Indy Lights uh, Indy Pro 2000 and whatnot uh, I kept looking I didn't see your name and that was making me very frustrated knowing how you and eventual Pro Mazda champion Renus VK really fought tooth and nail he finished first won the scholarship you finished second, uh, won a number of races, uh, but didn't get that championship. But you just looked ready 
absolutely ready to make the leap to Indy Lights and it didn't happen. Tell us about your off season, man, and what transpired before we get to your kind of surprise pop up at St. Pete with Able Motorsports. Well, first, Marshall, thank you so much for having me on. I'm a, a huge fan of the show, so to make my first appearance, uh, I'm pretty stoked to be here. Um, to talk about this offseason, it was a interesting one. Um, obviously, I got the uh, getting vice champion in the what is was formerly Pro Mazda, now Indy Pro 2000. I got a. We don't use vice champion on this show, by the way, Parker. Uh, there's only one. <laughs> there's only one champion, and that's the winner. So right. we, we don't use vice champion here. Just just a little friendly note. Second. Sorry, that's great to know. So I got second in the championship. Um, that got me an admission to test an Indy Lights car. Uh, so what uh, the road to Indy does is. Uh, with second and third place, you get one day in Indy Lights car at the Chris Griffiths Memorial. Um, I tested with Team Pelfrey, and uh, Dale was uh, grateful enough to uh, to give me two days in the car. So that was awesome to get my first taste of that IL-15 car. Very cool car. Obviously, that's where my heart was. I wanted to move up into Indy Lights, uh, but as we all know, uh, that takes a lot of a lot of funding behind to uh, to get in that series. And unfortunately, uh, with with where I'm at with funding, I couldn't make things happen and, and couldn't make the pieces of the puzzle fit. I was struggling just to get back into uh, the Indy Pro 2000 grid. Um, but this opportunity came up a week ago. It was <laughs> I was literally uh, I was I shouldn't say sitting on my butt at home, but um, the phone wasn't ringing. I was looking at some sports car opportunities in the off season, and then uh, really a week before the season opener in St. Pete, uh, I had heard of a, a ride opening up at Able Motorsports. Um, we got to go do the, the Homestead test together, and we meshed really well. I think we, we had a really good test. And uh, they gave me a call on Monday that said, do you want to come race St. Pete for us? And that, I mean, obviously it turned out to be a fortuitous thing. What's your mindset at this point? We're going to get into uh, listener questions here in just a moment. It's really awesome to see that you got almost as many as five-year Formula One star Marcus Erickson, so you're doing something good on the uh, road to indie level in terms of uh, letting folks know that you exist and you have talent. But g- give us your mindset coming into St. Pete. Was it uh, able through me a lifeline? I've got one shot or at least one confirmed chance to remind folks of what I can do. Was it, hey, maybe I can return even though, you know, maybe you don't want to spend a full year in Indy Pro 2000, knowing that, you know, at least I'm confident you belong in Indy Lights without question, but just curious on the mindset, hey, one off, give a reminder, or, well, maybe I can come back and maybe I can win and get that advancement prize for 2020 to Indy Lights. Well, I think I definitely came in, Marshall, with a point to prove at St. Pete. Um, you know, I, I, I wanted to be in Indy Lights, and obviously there's a lot of guys I raced against last year that have all made the jump up, and, and as you saw this weekend, they're the, the front runners in Indy Lights right now. Um, so the fact that I wasn't able to do that and I wasn't able to make the jump, I wanted to make sure that I proved a point that I deserved to be there. And uh, maybe I didn't come with the, the correct funding, but I, I know I can wheel a race car. So coming into this one-off event, as much pressure as there was knowing that I only had one shot with Able Motorsports to make sure that I... Uh, I performed at the top of my game. There was also just this, I think, chip on my shoulder all weekend and just go prove to everyone that, uh, and that's, uh, that's what I did. So it was kind of interesting. As much pressure as there was on me, I was kind of just enjoying every moment of it. Um, 
you know, when you spend all off season not thinking you're going to get to start St. Pete, you really, you go into that weekend and you enjoy it. I was just thankful to be there. Um, you know, I enjoyed every single lap of it. It was cool, the last lap of race two. Just kind of enjoying it, seeing all the fans and, and getting to take everything in. It was a, a pretty emotional weekend. Well, let's get started here with questions. I'm going to go to our pal, Jimmy and Tuttle. It says, Parker, <clears throat> how does the power of an Indy Pro 2000 car compare to the USF 2000 car? It's a great question there, too, knowing that the uh, the commonality in power plant and also with your momentum from last year continuing this year do you foresee reaching IndyCar in the next couple of years awesome question so first to look at the power of the USF 2000 versus the Indy Pro 2000 um, so on the spec sheet it's about a, a difference of 100 horsepower but I think that the real difference is the power delivery um, the Pro Mazda um, before they, they started bringing the revs down uh, in off-season testing last year, it was revving at close to, to 10,000 RPM, which is pretty insane for a little two-liter engine. Um, it just screamed. Now it's down to about 8,500 RPM, but it is really snappy on the bottom end compared to the USF 2000. So you've got to manage wheel spin up second and third gear, uh, which is very different, where USF is more you're just worried about first gear wheel spin. So that's uh, the difference of power plants. And then moving on to the second part of that question, um, with the recent results, I've always been focused on IndyCar. I mean, since I've been an, an eight-year-old kid, IndyCar has been my dream. It's been where I've wanted to get to. Um, so the fact that uh, I went out and dominated St. Pete, I don't think changes my goal. It's to get to IndyCar. I know the size of the task that is going to be because it's more than just what you do on the track. It's, it's what you do off the track. But uh, I'm prepared to do everything I can to make it happen. Um, being freshly 21 right now, I'm really hoping, you know, by the time I'm 23, 24, I mean, I'd love to win Indy Pro this year, move up to Indy Lights, win Indy Lights, and, and get into IndyCar. But even winning your way, as we see with Pato Award, um, just because you're winning doesn't mean you're getting a full-time ride. You know, it's, it's the off-the-track stuff that's just as important. So hopefully by the time I'm 23, 24, I can, uh, I can maybe look at a full-time seat in IndyCar. Next, it's a comment from Jim Johnstone who says, Parker, I don't really have a question for you, but I want to say I've been following you on the road to Indy Ladder for a while now and rooting for you. I hope we get to have another talented Canadian in IndyCar in a few years, and good luck. And I just thought not only was that a really kind note from Jim, but that's also an interesting thing to uh, expand upon here. When we spoke after your win on Sunday, you, know, you mentioned something that I thought was, it was a great point. That maybe not everybody, maybe not everybody in the good old United States grasps, and it's that not everybody in Canada either speaks French or is from Toronto. There's other regions as well. Uh, there's this <clears throat> western portion of Canada that's pretty awesome too. Whether it's Alberta, uh, whether it's British Columbia, etc. You happen to be uh, a Canadian more from my side of the hemisphere. And that's not only important, but there are also some great businesses. There's also just great pride from where you're from. So just if you could expand on that a little bit to help folks realize that uh, there's not only diversity in talent in Canada, but there's also regional diversity too. For sure, and, and thank you so much, Jim, for those comments. That means a lot. Um, so what, I guess, separates myself apart from, uh, 
the likes of James Hinchcliffe, Robert Wickens, or, or the Eastern Canadian drivers is, like you said, Marshall, I am from Western Canada, which is different. Uh, there, hasn't, uh, there hasn't been a prominent Western Canadian IndyCar driver um, for a long time. So it's, it's nice to try and carry that torch for, uh, for us in Western Canada. Obviously, there's a ton of Canadian fans, uh, a ton of Canadian motorsports fans in Eastern Canada. So definitely don't want to uh, disinclude them. But I feel like I do have very good support here back uh, from Western Canada. And I think I really need to garner that if I want to move forward. Uh, I need to, uh, to try and find that big sponsor. Luckily, I've, uh, I've been grateful enough to work with Badlands Motorsports Resort. Um, so if you, if you want more information on them, they're a really cool project that's going on right now. What they're doing is putting up a, a beautiful motorsports resort in Drumheller, Alberta. There's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of tourism here in Alberta. We've got Banff, which is a, a huge skiing, uh, skiing destination. And then we've got Drumheller, which is probably the dinosaur destination of the world. Now, if you ever want to come check out uh, Dinosaur Bones, that's the place to do it. And they're actually putting up a motorsports resort uh, in Drumheller. So if I could try and help out drive tours into Western Canada, obviously you've maybe heard of the, uh, the Calgary Stampede. That's a huge staple we have out west here. Of course. Uh, that's kind of my goal. Well, let's uh, move on to a, a question that we've gotten in a few different forms. So I've, uh, I've saved the one here from Bodon Klemensky. And I hope I didn't just murder your last name too much, but on. Uh, he said, nice meeting you at St. Pete. Bought the ticket, bought the merch, paid for NBC Gold, etc. So clearly have a big IndyCar fan here. And uh, but on asks, what's the best way to support the lower series guys like Parker Thompson and their teams to show they have worth just like those in the top series? So I don't know if it's uh, a, not necessarily a GoFundMe type thing, Parker, but I have seen a number of folks say, hey, yeah, this kid is looking like, you know, the the next generation Hinch or Wiki. We want to make sure we can find out. We want to see him continue. How do we help? So how do we? That is a great question, and I get asked a lot. Um, when I look at the GoFundMe accounts, I, uh, I definitely won't be running a GoFundMe in the near future. I know on Twitter that's been something that's kind of been <laughs> trending, especially after this weekend, as people are, are wondering how they can, they can donate money. But, but my answer is simply just help me promote myself. If you can get on Twitter, if you can follow me, promote me, and praise me um, as, I, as I try and make it to IndyCar, honestly, that goes a long way in finding that uh, hopefully one sponsor that'll that'll get me the tickets and and allow me to move to IndyCar. Um, And then every year, I usually do a merchandise sale. So I'll do some hats and T-shirts. I know uh, Able Motorsports has talked about maybe getting some merchandise. So, I mean, if you want to follow someone on the grassroots up, um, please, by all means, uh, try and jump on the bandwagon early. Um, I know the IndyCar guys can get really busy on race car weekends, but I'm an open book. If they want to come up to me in pit lane or or they want to come up to me in the tents, I got nothing to do. I'm, I got nothing to do. <laughs> I love it. Well, the other thing, too, and I'll just mention, certainly worth visiting RoadToIndy.com or all the individual sites for Indie Lights, Indie yeah. Pro 2000, USF 2000, and looking at a lot of the kids that are coming up. And there are some, you can just tell by looking at their uh, their positions in the championship or their you know pedigree coming in, but... You know whether it is a Parker, uh, there are just many, many young drivers who I think would be uh, overjoyed to have fans taking an active role 
in their young careers, you know, on social media. And, you know, we're not vouching or claiming anyone's going to be future world champions, but it is, you know, it is a very awesome thing with the road to Indy, uh, it being our, you know, open wheel equivalent of college football, college basketball. You know, if we're talking at the USF 2000 level, that's probably high school uh, type sports. But if you see someone who reminds you of that next LeBron James or pick whomever it might be, um, it's kind of cool to know that you can track their career across many steps. Hopefully follow with them, you know, give them a little nudge, a high five, a congratulations, something, some sort of bump on social media. And maybe unlike some of the, you know, very well-known NCAA players who might not respond Pretty much guarantee you, Parker Thompson, uh, just about everybody on the road to Indy will respond to you because, as you said, if you're not working out, you're searching for sponsors, and between that, you're staring at your phone. So uh, you got the time. I like that, man. I'll make a point. If anyone does get a hold of me, today is my my big social media day. I'm going through the the hundreds of different tweets. If if they take time to, to reach out to me, I'll definitely take time out of my day to reach out back to them. I love it. Let's go to Evan Kramer, who says, Parker, your rise in the road to Indy the past couple years has been awesome to watch, and St. Pete was an amazing start to the year. Evan asks, of your previous races on the ladder so far, which one sticks out to you the most, and which one do you feel you learned the most from? Very interesting question, and thank you, Evan, for that. Um, what always I say sticks out the, the most is probably my most memorable win would be uh, sweeping the weekend in Toronto in USF 2000 back in 2017. Uh, that was pretty unbelievable to race in front of uh, a ton of Canadian, uh, passionate Canadian motorsports fans and to be the, uh, the only Canadian that year racing in USF 2000 and to go get both wins, that's definitely the most memorable. And I was racing with a Canadian team at the time, Exclusive Autosports. Yep. So it was double, double victorious for both of us. And um, the race I learned from the most, you know what? Let's take it back to last year at uh, the St. Petersburg Grand Prix. I uh, was leading the Pro Mazda, which is now Indy Pro 2000 race. I had a, a very nice gap to Renus, and unfortunately on the, uh, on the restart, um, with three laps to go, a caution flag came out, and on the restart, I lost the lead. And that was a tough, tough pill to swallow because uh, we had that race locked up. And unfortunately, you know, little things like restarts and starts can make a race. Um, so it was interesting. I reviewed a, a lot of footage this off season on how I can how I can improve different aspects of my restarts and, and get craftier with with how I, uh, I make a restart and get a gap. And I think uh, this weekend I nailed my restarts and starts, did a really good job keeping myself clean and, and keeping four wheels on the car, not being too aggressive when I didn't need to, and then uh, being aggressive and putting the nail in the coffin when I did. So I'd say uh, St. Pete last year set up the, the double victories this year. I love it. All right, a couple more questions for you. Let's go to Let's go to Howard Hall who asks you to look into – sorry, I didn't mean to have a rhyming convention here, but – a crystal ball. Uh, Howard asks, Parker, where do you see IndyCar going in the next five years? That's interesting because, you know, some of us older farts who have been around it forever, we've got all kinds of ideas. I love Howard's question because, you know, at 21, you know, relatively new to the world compared to some of us, 
What do you see in IndyCar? What do you think it might be, uh, you know, halfway through the next decade? Well, great question, Howard. Um, I'm, I'm very excited for IndyCar. I really think that, uh, I don't know if it was just me, but the stands, I don't know the exact numbers, but the stands at the St. Petersburg, St. Petersburg Grand Prix this year looked a lot fuller than they have in years past. Yep, sure did. And the fans at St. Pete were a lot more interactive. I mean, the amount of people that actually came up to me and knew who I were <laughs> or who I was, um, and that is really cool. Fans are getting more engaging. You've got younger fans. You know, uh, kids my age were coming up to me and saying, hey, how do I get involved with racing? This is cool. And that's something I haven't seen, you know, on my last kind of four years of the road to Indy. Uh, so IndyCar excites me. I think it's growing. Um, I do think we need to, uh, for us Canadians up north, we need to, to work on promoting and getting a, a full-time television package to help grow the series, especially for me. But at the same time, I think in the U.S., it's getting a great package right now on TV, and it's growing. And uh, hopefully the next five years, it continues to get better. I think I think what uh, Mr. Fry is doing and, and everyone at IndyCar is doing is, is pretty pretty fantastic, and I think it's only going to grow. So uh, to answer your question, hopefully I'm involved in the next five years. That's the goal. Yeah, well, amen to that. Uh, let's see. Let's go to Jamie Carr next, who says... I saw you make that awesome pass for the lead at the Indy Grand Prix last year. says, I hope to see that again this year. Uh, Jamie asks, you are now uh, in car number eight, but it looks like you like uh, the number 90. Any significance with having the number 90 on your cars? So that's a great question. Um, going back to the significance of the number 90, uh, a team owner by the name of Michael Duncalf, who owns Exclusive Autosports, he was uh, a huge part of my career. And honestly, uh, over the last course of the two years, I would not be talking to you on to talking to you on the phone today, Marshall, if it wasn't for Michael and and what he did for my career. And number ninety is the uh, I'd say it's the Exclusive Autosports special number. That is the they are always in the nineties. It starts as number ninety and goes up through number ninety four. Um, so I had the pleasure of running number 90 for Michael. That's kind of his special number. And, uh, and that stayed with Exclusive Autosports. So that's why you don't see me with the number 90 this year's. Is that, is, uh, that is Exclusive Autosports number. But at the same time, I was very proud to run it for the course of the two years that I did. And uh, number eight. So for the fans that don't know, uh, and same with IndyCar, the road to Indy, the teams actually have to buy their numbers from the series. And then that number is designated to the team. Um, so... Able Motorsports had bought the number eight, and uh, that was the uh, the entry that they gave me. And it's interesting um, to go back to, to special numbers. Uh, Bill Abel, the, the team owner at Able Motorsports, asked me, "Hey, Parker, what number would uh, would you like for for the season or for the Grand Prix of St. Petersburg?" And uh, he said, well, "We bought number eight, but he said, you know what? There's other numbers open if you uh, if you don't mind." And it's interesting going back to my Canadian heritage. The first ever hockey number that I had was number eight uh. and uh, in go-karting <laughs> I was number eight um, so kind of interesting how that all played out but uh, he brought up number eight to me and I said you know what that sounds great so yeah he knew he just knew you mentioned uh, Michael Duncalf I met him I don't know I think maybe for the first time ten years ago seven eight nine years ago when he was involved with a, uh, a friend's uh, sports car team at Bimmer World and uh, the exclusive autosport okay. relationship was there and that developed uh, more and more year after year and they ended up doing some really good stuff together and was very impressed 
with Michael's enthusiasm, but also his commitment as well. And admittedly, I was very surprised when I saw his exclusive Autosport team, uh, well, the formation of it, but then it's the decision to do open wheel, knowing that I thought Michael was going to be a, a lifer when it came to sports cars, touring cars, and so on. But when I saw the open wheel uh, branch start, I said, ooh, all right, this is going to be interesting. And then seeing that he tabbed you to represent uh, your fine, fine country, I just thought, well, here we go. This is just Canada coming out strong, and you guys achieved some great stuff. So very cool to know, you know, and to see your appreciation of him and for what he's done, because there are, although he hasn't, you know, He's not that old. He hasn't been doing this that long, but he has definitely helped a number of young drivers, uh, in particular Canadian drivers, to advance their careers. So good, good stuff there. Let's uh, let's get down to our last two questions here, Parker. Uh, one comes in from Joey of the Priuses, who asks: After seeing seeing Alex Barron's spectacular barrel roll in the first corner of the USF 2000 race before uh, your first race. Did you treat the first corner of lap one any differently than normal? <laughs> Great question. So, um, do I have any superstitions on race weekends? No, I do not. But if I hear that there's a crash or there's anything to do with people hitting walls, I just think it's a bad omen to watch that stuff. So when I heard that uh, when I heard that Alex Barron had a, a bad crash, I definitely turned my mind off to that. I didn't want to see any of that. Um, but going towards my, my approach for turn one, race one, um, I knew on the out, outside off pole was Rasmus Lynn. I had not raced against Rasmus before. This was my, my, first, uh, my first race with him in the same series. I watched some videos last year and saw he was fairly aggressive, especially on starts, so I knew what I was up against. And uh, when I saw him on my outside and when he started to turn into turn one, I just kind of let him have it, to be honest. Uh, there's no need to... Uh, I've seen enough people wreck in turn one. Uh, when he got as fast as the car that we did with the, the number eight Able Motorsports car, I just made sure we kept it clean, and uh, I knew we'd have another opportunity to get him as the race went on. So uh, my race one, turn one, had nothing to do with Alex Barron. It was more or less just me wanting to keep clean. Um, but I did see the spectacular crash that Alex Barron had, and I have to say that Tatis race car, it's just a true testament to how strong that car is and that everyone walked away from that. Well, Parker, let's close with a question from Ted Nesbitt, something we touched on a little bit, uh, and you did as well, but I figured it'd be interesting to expand on this to close. And Ted asks, how tough is it to land a sponsor for Road to Indy series compared to the main IndyCar series, where we see even teams there can struggle? Uh, and the second question we'll get to in a moment uh, is about uh, the Canadian TV package, but maybe give us some insights Parker, on your daily routine on this sponsor search, when you're not doing all the other things, you know, training uh, and otherwise trying to keep yourself sharp when you do get behind the wheel, but what is it, what's the life of a, you know, a 21-year-old Western Canadian trying to engage companies and, and or benefactors to get behind you at this junior level to help get you to the promised land of IndyCar, what's an average day or week like for you? What are you doing to help advance this? And how tough is it? What are some of the struggles? <laughs> well, Marshall, I, I think I've worn out a, a few cell phones this off season. 
I've been on the phone so much. Um, you're on the phone, you're trying to meet with people. Um, you know, the, the cold, the days of cold emailing, I'm not sure if they ever work for people, but cold emailing definitely doesn't work uh, or hasn't worked for me. It's really picking up the phone and it's trying to, uh, to connect with the right people. Um, LinkedIn is a great tool for myself. It's, a, it's actually amazing how many people you can connect with or, or how many mutual connections you already have that you didn't know you had. And, and you know, I'll, I'll mention one thing here that I think is, is worth just adding in, and it's an appreciation yeah. for what you just mentioned. Doing what I do as a reporter and also having been part of you know, IndyCar Paddock and Sports Car Paddock for most of my life, know a lot of people, and so therefore you know, I end up acting as a conduit for a lot of folks, uh, young drivers, very often as well. Hey, I'd really like to connect with this driver, this team owner, whatever. Can you uh, can you send me their email address? And my response is, I can, but I won't. I'll give you their phone number though, and you better not text them, because at least in terms of modern trends, I've seen you know too many young drivers want to use the uh, most passive way of connecting with someone for the first time. And I believe it's both protection, right? Fear of rejection. Well, it's easier if I send an email or a text. And if they don't respond, well, okay. Uh, you avoid that awkwardness. But I think there's just also a little bit of a lack of awareness that for most situations, the person you want to connect with that can help your career is going to be twice your age, if not older, and grew up at a time where making introductions through email and text is not the norm. They're accustomed to face-to-face, -face, or as you mentioned, an actual, hi, person, I'm another person, I'd like to talk with you, I think we could do good things together, let's get to know one another in an organic fashion, at least by hearing one another's voices, I just mentioned this because uh, that stood out to me immediately that, you know, at 21, you've realized doing the passive approach is not the way to make uh, progress 99% uh, of the time. Yeah, and that's, uh, you know what, I would honestly rather get rejected over the phone, but make 10 phone calls and maybe get my foot in the door somewhere than not hear back from 10 emails. <laughs> so... Rejection is, uh, you have to get used to it if you want to, uh, if you want to make it to IndyCar. That's, that's part of the game. Um, and then apart from making phone calls, connections, uh, and trying to prove people that uh, money spent on the road to Indy is, is money well spent, um, I also run a texting and driving campaign uh, here in Canada, and we're actually starting to implement it uh, down in the States as well. Um, so I'm a safety ambassador, obviously don't text and drive, that's our, our main point. So what I did four years ago was I created a campaign called Drive to Stay Alive. And what Drive to Stay Alive is, is it's a, it's a high school and college presentation. Uh, so every year I speak to over 50, I speak to 50 to, 50 to 100 schools on the dangers of texting and driving. Wow. Uh, most of it's done here in Alberta, but it is across Canada. I've spoken to uh, a number of provinces, and I've also spoken uh, down in St. Pete in Alabama for the first couple races of the Road to Indy. And uh, that's really helped. I mean, you know, community activation is, is a lot stronger than just, hey, can I have money to put uh, towards my, my racing dream? So those are the things that have worked for me. 
Ted also asks about this Canadian TV package that most folks, I believe, would agree is suboptimal, substandard than what was received previously. Uh, we know eight races will be on NBC slash NBC affiliates. And then there's this kind of weird mix of uh, paying for multiple tiers to get it on a specific cable channel. Then there's some streaming options, but uh, the days of knowing you could just sit down for those, you know, and I think many folks, at least IndyCar's primary demographic, which is an older white male, uh, still leaning very heavily towards plonking down on the couch turning on an actual television, not a streaming device, and watching it, uh, that has become less of an immediate option or an easy option for 2019. And so Ted asks how that might affect you, as, as he says, as a young Canuck in a feeder series. Any thoughts on how that might make your, your efforts and any other young Canadians trying to get to IndyCar uh, an even greater challenge? Well, it's a very interesting aspect, Ted. Um, And Marshall, thank you for for opening up these questions. These are awesome. I think what hurts me is um, awareness in motorsports is absolutely critical for me in Canada. I mean, I need people to know what IndyCar is. Um, So this TV package, yes, I I race an Indy Pro 2000, which never had a, a real TV package in Canada anyways. So that's not a direct effect. But what does affect me is when I mentioned that I race an Indy Pro, People go, oh, what's Indy Pro? And I say, well, it's the it's one of the feeder series to IndyCar. And if they're not, uh, if that's not top of mind, that is really tough in a sponsor pitch or even just in in meeting fans and trying to explain what I do. Um, so we definitely need to uh, we need to try and, and bring this motorsports awareness across Canada. And I think honestly, a TV package is the best way to do it. Um, I'm old fashioned. I like flipping on a channel and knowing that my uh, my race is going to start it. You know. 10 a.m. Or, or whatever time it starts at you know the stream can drop or this and that can drop so I definitely do like the television aspect um, I think a lot of Canadians at least I'm, I'm going off of Twitter and the general feeling that I get but a lot of Canadians are feeling a bit gypped they want uh, they want more TV package for, uh, for any car races so I hope we can work something out in the near future I know there's a few countries in the same uh, in the same situation and I'm confident that IndyCar can get the job done for, uh, for their northern friends Parker Thompson, so happy we're having you on here. You are my cleanup hitter uh, on this week's episode of The Week in IndyCar presented by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. If I knew more about hockey, I'd try and think of uh, an equivalent for a cleanup hitter from baseball and whatever that might be in hockey. But glad to have you on, my man. And I think like many, and as I do for so many Road to Indy drivers, rooting for you and hoping that uh, a few more years down the road be talking to you on IndyCar Media Day at spring training and uh, cheering you on privately again with uh, so many other young drivers who are going to represent the series next generation well hey thank you so much Marshall uh, to be the cleanup hitter on a show with uh, Marcus Erickson and uh, and Mike Hall is pretty amazing. I look up to both those guys, so to, uh, to say I'm the ringer of the show, is, <laughs> I love that. That sounds great. 
And uh, thank you very much to Justice Brothers for sponsoring your show. It's, uh, it's great to finally get on. I'm a huge fan, and uh, I look forward to uh, chatting with you throughout the season.